to Lisbon. You would like to be on it. Why? What's in Lisbon? Clipper to America. My friends in the underground tell me that you've quite a record. You ran guns to Ethiopia. You fought against the fascists in Spain. What of it? Isn't it strange that you always happen to be fighting on the side of the underdog? I've often speculated on why you don't return to America. Did you abscond with the church funds? Did you run off with the senator's wife? I like to think that you killed a man. It's the romantic in me. It's a combination of all three. And what in heaven's name brought you to Casablanca? I'm a saloon keeper. The problems of the world are not in my department. But when you first came to Casablanca, I thought... You thought what? Why did you come back? To tell me why you ran out on me at the railway station? We knew very little about each other when we were in love in Paris. If we leave it that way, maybe we'll remember those days, not Casablanca. Last night I saw what has happened to you. The Rick I knew in Paris, I could tell him he'd understand. The one who looked at me with such hatred. I'll be leaving Casablanca soon and we'll never see each other again. Don't you sometimes wonder if it's worth all this? You might as well question why we breathe. Each of us has a destiny for good or for evil. I know a good deal more about you than you suspect. I wonder if you know that you're trying to escape from yourself. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. Here's looking at you, kid. Welcome to episode 25, the Booze Cruise podcast, where we actually are doing a double feature. Mm-hmm. Did you catch Tom Cruise in Casablanca? I did. I saw him. <laughs> I saw him. He was... He was one of the bartenders in the back. You saw him just very briefly. You gotta keep a sharp eye out for him. He's he's wily. This was him prepping for cocktail about 40 years in advance. That's right. We are doing a double feature of Casablanca and Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. And we're going to get to the connection in the second part of this podcast. Mm -hmm. But I actually stumbled upon this idea. When I saw Rogue Nation, I, I actually tweeted at Christopher McQuarrie. Oh, really? About the Casablanca connections. Oh. And he responded to me. Really? Yes. I didn't know and that. And so I thought as I was prepping, um, this is a special edition because we're in Texas. This is coming to you live from McKinney, Texas. The, the Dallas edition. Um, The Dallas edition of the Booze Cruise podcast. And um, we obviously have... Cameron Ross of Jerry Maguire fame. That's me. Um, back That's me. on the podcast. And so when I was coming down, I was coming down just to visit, hang out. And I was mm-hmm. like, we have to record another podcast. Absolutely. Um, and I was thinking, what should we do? And I was like, I think I want to do Rogue Nation. So I reached out to Cameron. I was like, hey, man, have you ever seen Casablanca? And your answer was no. I yes. Have not. <laughs> and I said, I know you've waited 24 years to watch this movie please don't watch it before i come down and, and i he, was somehow able to hold off i know you struggled until you got here it, I was did. A, it was a really rough struggle to watch casablanca so we actually just finished casablanca this was my idea i was like okay i, was, I had this idea a few weeks ago i want to do a double feature where we watch casablanca and mission impossible rogue nation and mm-hmm. uh cameron's mission should he choose to accept it um oh, yeah. is to take notes obviously about rogue nation as we go along but to see any parallels that you see yes. to Casablanca, which we just watched. So what did you think of Casablanca? I loved Casablanca. I really did. What so, did you think about it? I got to say that I think there's something to be said for like uh, simplicity and yes. things that are like able to like traverse like time. Yes. And obviously, like the storyline is is 
you know, historical relevance, yes. you know, with, with World War II and the Nazis and all that stuff. But I, I mean, it, it was dang near a perfect movie in right? my opinion, because it just, it hits everything that it's trying to do. Yes. And I feel like it's just B for B. Like the pacing's great. It doesn't feel long. It doesn't stumble upon itself. The, the writing's unbelievable. I know. The acting is really good. And it just the whole time I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, how did they, how did they make um, this movie? in yes. 1942 i know and i don't know how any movie gets made ever but to yeah. to make something like that that is just so perfectly packaged and just whip smart and and entertaining like that in 1942 along with like having a pretty good grasp for like the far-reaching uh repercussions yes. of world war ii mm-hmm. and the nazi party in germany and everything like that it's just a very it's a very aware movie that does a really good job of kind of getting across like a love story pretty much yes in the middle of like a very pertinent time in history so yes. I, I really really did enjoy it yeah and for those who don't know it was released in 1942 yep which would have been right smack dab in the middle of world war ii yes of course we as americans only think of world war ii from 1941 to 1945 right. but it actually started in 1939 yes so there was a so they would have filmed this probably in 1941 i'm assuming yeah, I mean, um, you would imagine if there. I mean, there's a whole American storyline of you know Rick Blaine and him trying to get back to America and blah right. blah blah. Right. Um, and so I think, but I agree 100. Like for them to shoot this in the middle of the World War, mm-hmm. Second World War, yeah, says a lot. I think, and the fact that it's like withstands time and the script is so good. The script is so good. The characters are great. There's a reason it's a classic. Yeah, you know, and people, this is the one they always come back to, and mm-hmm. it's actually I actually took this um, cinema history class. I was required to take two cinema history classes in college um, for my major, and in cinema history one, this was one of the movies we watched, and our professor sure. was like ninety years old, and I'm pretty sure he saw this in theaters. It's oh fine; gosh. it's not weird at all. Um, he was like, "Back in my day," and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" I was like looking at my classmates. I was like, "You guys realize like." He probably saw he this and he like theaters. paid his nickel and saw this in theaters. He couldn't believe there was sound. I know. He was like, what? A talkie. <laughs> um, and, but it is one of the most quoted movies that people don't realize they're quoting. Yeah. Um, and so the exercise they had us do in class um, was he basically was like, I want you to watch this movie and write down every line you've heard somewhere else. Either like parodied or quoted and there's so many or just that you knew like if you'd never seen the movie, but you still knew. Mm -hmm. And so that was really interesting to me when I watched it the first time was to see the influence that it had had on movies and just culture in general. Um, There's a lot of things that are pulled from this movie, which is a little bit of the tie in with Rogue Nation. So we'll get to that. Um, And so I'm really, really excited. I think it's interesting. I've never watched them back to back. Um, but I have see seen it. Casablanca a number of times. I've seen Rogue Nation more times than I'd care to admit. <laughs> um, and so I'm very excited to watch them back to back and let you kind of draw your conclusions as to the connections that were made. Mm-hmm. But I am excited. Yeah, I'm excited to see it too. And I've, I just real quick, just back to Casablanca, I feel like it's really rare to see something that is created or, or talked about or is sending across a message in the middle of something that is so impactful to have like a very like apt awareness of how it's affecting things so like i feel like there was probably especially like in 1941 1942 i I would assume that you know there's probably a general sentiment of like the things that were going on but for it to have like such kind of 
upstanding like morality and mm-hmm. like an understanding of like the dynamics of what was going on mm-hmm. at the time like yep. i feel like it's a really tough thing to do because yeah. it, you know if you look at something now or you look back at even like you know years back with like the iraq war and, yeah. and different types of engagements right. on a global scale it's kind of sometimes tough to tell in the moment yep kind you know who's the good guy who's the bad guy what's yeah. really kind of going on here yeah. and i felt like that had a pretty firm grasp on yeah on like the total dynamics of like the world yeah. scale of it. And I thought that was just really, really cool and impressive yeah. that, that they were able to pull that off that it still stands up today. So one of the major scenes in the movie that um, obviously besides the final scene, which is quoted, you know, that we'll always have Paris. Here's yeah. looking at you, kid. Um, scene is the scene in Rick's cafe where Major Strasser is um, basically starts the German national anthem. Yeah. And then Laszlo comes out and he starts the French national anthem. Yeah. And in that scene, they show a couple close up shots of people like crying while they're singing it. Um, and I thought this is a really interesting fact is that though there are people in that scene that were actual refugees. Really? Yeah. That had fled. And it became like a super emotional scene while they were filming it because yeah. they were living in the middle right, of because it. Because you know? there was reality for it them. It was fresh, you know? Yeah. Um, and that so I thought crazy. that was really interesting, but I think that speaks to what you're saying is that it is, it was a movie of the times, but it is very timeless in that regard as well. Yeah. Because it, um, it, they got it right. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like they, yeah, it they wasn't, it. it wasn't, uh, something that, that, that lacked any type of like nuance or perspective on what was really, really going on. Yeah. Like it seems like they had a, a really firm grasp of, you know, the, the wide reaching repercussions of, mm-hmm. of what was happening at the time. And I mean, if they have refugees and stuff yeah. in the actual scenes, it kind of yeah. makes sense that they would have a pretty good right. grasp of, Perspective. Of, uh, of how this is affecting yeah, people. For so. sure. And one thing that Rogue Nation does not pull from Casablanca is a super simple plot, um, <laughs> which is literally there is Rick who owns Rick, Rick's Cafe American. Yep. And it's basically just two refugees trying to get out of the country and make it to America. That's the whole movie. There's yeah. not a whole lot no, to it. No, there's um, not. But there's, I think the great thing about Casablanca, and I think it's studied a lot, especially in storytelling and script writing, is that every scene has a purpose. Yeah. There's no nothing scene. Wasted. Yeah, there's nothing wasted. Every scene in that movie serves a purpose. The dialogue is great. Everything has... Like even some of it's subversive, but it's just so well written. And I think that's what I love about it. Yeah. And I I feel like it has a a very strong grasp of like the scale that it's going for. Mm -hmm. Because there, I mean, it's especially with the the type of stuff that it was balancing with like World War II and and Nazi occupation and stuff like that. Like that has a real ability to kind of really get far reaching and yeah. and get out there and complicate the plot mm-hmm. and you can bring in all kinds of different things but it stays yeah. focused on like the refugee plot and like the love story yeah. while being surrounded like on the periphery by all of these things that are yes. affecting the story the politics but it yeah. doesn't let it like stretch the story you know right. what i'm saying like yeah, it, it, it could have gone off in a million different directions yeah, but yeah it and doesn't. i feel like you, you see that a lot today with a lot of movies where like the the scale and the scope of of what they're going for like it just gets larger and larger and larger and yeah that might be just a byproduct of you know what they were capable of yeah what they yeah. were capable of and, and and also like the like the amount of entertainment and information and stuff that we have access to that it's like we might go into something like expecting that large scale because we feel like we are in touch with things that are much more far reaching right. than they did yeah. in the, in the 1940s. But there's definitely something to be said about like yeah. controlling the scope of your movie and understanding what you're trying to get across. And I feel like they absolutely nailed it there. Yeah. I think the crazy thing about this movie too, is when you look back, so back in the golden age of Hollywood studios actually like 
quote unquote owned actors and actresses. So like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, like there was a lot of these pairings that, um, did a lot of movies together. Yeah. And it was just that the studio was like, we have Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers and this year we're making swing time. (laughs) Yeah. And next year we're making top hat. Right. Like, and it's literally, they just bring these writers in and they'd throw the same people into the same movies. And Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman were with the same studio, Warner brothers. And this movie was actually a filler movie. Oh really? Yeah. It wasn't supposed to be a big deal. Wow. And, uh, they were between two movies that were supposed to be huge movies for the studio. Mm Mm-hmm. And somebody came in and was like, let's just make Casablanca in the interim. And it wasn't supposed to be a big movie. And now it's like one of the most revered movies in Hollywood. Yeah. It's number two on American Film Institute's like top 100 movies. Yeah. And so it's funny to me that at the time, like they didn't think they were making a big deal, but it actually ended up being something that like resonates through, you know, it's a timeless movie. Yeah, absolutely. It um, is. And I think there's a part of, I don't know, it's, it's funny to me. I kept saying while we were watching it, like Captain Reno is like my favorite like character That's in the movie he's character. so funny he's the best lines yes. um but i think everybody kind of sees themselves in a little bit of each character in the movie you know what so i mean too. yeah i um, think so too so i think it's pretty cool all right let's jump into rogue nation so that rogue we nation can time. make our Casablanca comparisons mm-hmm. but i'm so excited like i hope you are watching because we both seen rogue nation yes I've seen it multiple times. Probably seen it three or four um, times. I yeah, think. it's such a good movie. Yeah. And so that's why I kind of like, I was excited to do it this way because I wanted it to be, I wanted you to see it through different lens. Yes. And so I thought this will be interesting for you to watch it having just seen Casablanca right. um, for the first time. And there's not overt, com- there's overt comparisons. It's not like a hundred percent obviously drawing from Casablanca, right. but it's clear that Christopher McQuarrie is a fan sure. of Casablanca. And so it's I think cool. it'll be um, interesting for you to see it. I'm excited All to get right. to it. Your mission. So you choose to accept it. Take notes. Let's do it. I'm going to take notes. Make some comparisons. Oh yeah, you bet. Let's do it, baby. Here we go. <laughs> the IMF is uniquely trained and highly motivated. Specialist without equal immune to any countermeasures. But it is an agency of chaos. The time has come to dissolve the IMF. Now, I want you to choose your next words very carefully. Where is Hunt? Last I heard, he was tracking the syndicate. How come the CIA has never discovered any intel regarding the syndicate? You want the polite answer or the truth? We've never met before, right? Follow me. Benji. Ethan, where are you? The Syndicate is real. A rogue nation trained to do what we do. An anti-IMF. They're coming after us with everything they've got. You ready? This may very well be our last mission. Let's make it count. So what's the play? You want to bring down the syndicate? It's impossible. How do you know we can trust her? Desperate times. Desperate measures. Get your seatbelt on. You asking me that now? Oh, hey, boys. What did I miss? 
Welcome back to my second time uh, guest, Cameron Ross. A repeat offender. That's right. Uh, cousin <laughs> extraordinaire. Um, I traveled all the way to Texas just for this podcast just for the episode. Podcast. That's that right. That is accurate. Mm-hmm. Today we watched Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, which might be my favorite Tom Cruise movie. It's definitely my favorite Mission Impossible. Okay. Directed by Christopher McQuarrie on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay, so before we get into the Rotten Tomatoes score, what would you give this movie on? I know you do one to a hundred. Yes. So we'll we'll do that. Yep. What's your one to one hundred score on these on this movie? Yeah. So uh, for like for me for the Mission Impossibles, this one this one might be my favorite out of all of them as well. I think Fallout is better. I would agree in with my that. mind. I would agree with that. Um, I think I think Fallout is one of the best action movies agreed ever made. Agreed. Um, and I think I have Fallout as like a ninety-seven yeah. out of hundred. Uh, but I, I do. There's some parts of Rogue Nation that I enjoy a little bit more than than Fallout just overall. Um, but I'd probably I think I'd probably give Rogue Nation a ninety-four probably. Okay, 94. It's really up there. I mean, that's a it's a significant it's score super right high. there. Fallout's yeah. like, don't you just watch this and then want to watch Fallout? Yeah, yeah. That's basically all this, like, it leads me into, I'm like, yeah, now I want to watch Fallout. Yeah, it's hard to watch one without the other. Yes. Um, this movie has its faults. It's not perfect. Mm-hmm. But for me, it is literally like Christopher McQuarrie climbed inside of my brain <laughs> yeah. and was like, here's a movie just for you. Right. And it is literally... It's so up there for me that I have to give it, I think, like, I do 1 to 10. So 10 out of 10 for me. Yeah. Um, It's hard to give a movie 100. 1 out of 100. You're a little bit more, you know, right. disparaging on a... But I'd say 98, yeah. 99 for me. Yeah. Um, And literally, it's just because, like, personally for me, I love it so much. Like, if yeah. I had to, like, objectively give it a score, that's the it'd thing. probably be around more around what you were saying. Yeah, that's the thing, too, with, like, scoring movies is, like, it's always hard to balance kind of, like, how much do I enjoy it and, like, how right. like how much fun do I have Like, how do I take it? myself out of it? Yeah, yeah, and, like, I always try not to be, like, too critical, but once, like, for me, normally, it's, like, if I get a movie where I watch it and I'm, like, okay, that's, that was probably in the 90 range. Right. It's, yes. I immediately will then start to get more critical with it. Yeah. Because then it's like, it, yeah, you know, those last 10 points, you got to earn them. You have to try and differentiate yeah, yeah, yeah. where it's I get like, that. and so like necessarily like my favorite movie might not necessarily be my highest rated movie. Yes. When it comes to that. But on a scale of like one to 10, it becomes a little more simplistic. But yeah, it's and, and the enjoyment factor for Rogue Nation is off the charts. Yes. It's so good. And I think too, like my list of my, Top 100 movies, and yes, I have a list. Um, <laughs> is my I base it on rewatchability for mm-hmm. me. Yes, it's not an objective like this is the best movie I've ever seen because sometimes, like, I feel like you see really, really good movies, and you're like, I'm glad I saw that, never want to see it again. Yes, you know, and it's Absolutely. like there, and there, I have some movies like that on my list where I'm like, for me, it's like if I would recommend this to somebody to watch, yes, that's how it makes it into my top 100 for sure. And yeah. I, I have like like we were talking about, was it yesterday? We we're talking about like Midsummer. Yes. And then uh, maybe like a movie like Joker. Yeah. Things like that that are, they're they're almost like they're tough to watch. Yeah. But like they're they're really well made and like yes. you do enjoy them, you know, at least somewhat when you're watching them. But you can definitely recognize like the stuff that they're pulling off in the movie. Yeah. But you're like, I literally have no desire to ever see that movie again. Yes. Right. And you're it's right. Like I would never watch, recommend yeah. that. 
yeah to somebody else so there's yeah. like a different scale for when it comes to like top 100 movies like in yes. terms of how much i enjoy them and yes. who, would i recommend them to somebody else as opposed to like just like the artistic accomplishment of i would the agree movie. with that i felt yeah. that way about dunkirk where i was like yeah i've never been so stressed out in a movie in my entire life and yeah. i'm like well i'm glad i saw it I never want to see that again. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I can see that. And, and that's, there's, there's um, a ton of movies like that. There's a lot of movies like yeah. that. For sure. Um, this is not one of them. This is not one of them. You could watch this thing over and over again. Yep. Um, so the Rotten Tomato score for this movie, which I think I think five and six. So Rogue Nation and Fallout are the highest rated mm-hmm. movies of the Mission Impossible franchise. That makes sense. It I is think. one of those weird ones where it does just get better. Yeah. It Which really gives does. me high hope for seven and eight. Oh, yeah. But the Rotten Tomato score, 93% tomato meter. Wow. So you were like right on the button, yeah. man. Yeah, that is right up there. Yeah. Um, And an 87% audience score. Come on, so, audience. I know. Come on, Figure man. It out. Get it. It's higher than that. Yeah, it is. Um. Our drink for the podcast today is a French 75, which actually Cameron made. I did. It's this episode 25, and this is the first episode where someone else made the cocktail. (laughs) And Cameron has prides himself on his bartending abilities. That's right. Um, During the pandemic, this is a hobby that he's taken up. Picked it up a lot. Yep, Um, I have. We picked the French 75 because it's ordered in Casablanca. Yes. Which was the first part of our double feature. Um, and there is a whole sequence in this movie that takes place in Casablanca mm-hmm. um, in French Morocco. And right. um, so the French 75 felt like a good homage to that. It's got yep. gin in it, simple syrup, lemon juice, champagne. It is freaking delicious. It's very good. It's very yeah. light. It's very tasty. Yes. You it's not like a, a very like heavy or syrupy no. drink or anything like that. It's a nice. I think the champagne adds yes. like a lot. The bubbly and kind of like very classy. It is. It's super classy it's a classy cocktail i felt classy in my sweatpants sitting here drinking that yeah that's all you need is a a fancy drink so much so that i was like can we have another so (laughs) if we're super giggly during this podcast you'll know why why. yeah Yeah. okay so i want to start off we'll go through the movie Mm -hmm. it's just like most mission impossible movies where it's like there's sequences that like make up the movie yes and so i think we'll go through that but what did you think what were your big Casablanca connections that okay. you really pulled out of it? Yeah, I mean, number one is obvious is just having Ilsa Faust. Yeah, you know, her the name's name, Ilsa. The name connection. Right. Um, but I did, I, I guess like the overall kind of plot, um, Ilsa's plot uh, specifically has kind of some parallels, at least for me, to Casablanca where it's like, an interesting situation where like she's kind of trapped by like her situation and she's yes. being like forced to do something trying to escape something um and then obviously ethan kind of comes in mm-hmm. almost like the rick character in yes. a way yeah. right um and they don't have like a past connection but they definitely have a connection yeah you yeah. right from the get-go yeah. they, they do have a connection and she is like trying to get away from something you know whatever but she has different moments like throughout where she's like presented with opportunities to do certain mm-hmm. things, but she's like, you know, at the one point um, when they're the, I guess it's the train station. She's like, come away with me. Yeah. Which is kind of like, I'll stay here with you. Yes. In Casablanca. And then, you know, she yep. kind of ends up. It's like an us against the world type yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah. But in, in the end, 
Ethan kind of they kind of end up just going their their separate their ways, ways because yeah. of the circumstances. And yes. so I, I saw like a lot of parallels with the yes. way that Elsa's story like unfolded and Rogue Nation with um, Ilsa and yeah. Casablanca and Rick. And that's like actually really interesting because I've never really thought about it from like a plot perspective, like what the connections were. But that's absolutely true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm really glad you keyed in on and that. If, if you take out and like if you take out like. I mean, even even like with like the hints of like espionage and like mm-hmm. secret things going on, you can connect to the Casablanca. But like the overarching story of Rogue Nation obviously doesn't relate that much yeah. to Casablanca. But if you take that out and you take in like the other uh, yeah. kind of periphery like plot points and storyline going yeah. on, like there is a lot of parallels. Yeah. To and it's w- weird because like in Casablanca, like it's a love story. Yes. But there's not a lot of like, but they're not in a relationship the entire time in the movie. Right. And there's not any like connection as far like physical connection between the two of them. Yeah. And that was something that I really loved about Rogue Nation. The first time I saw it was like, man, I'm so glad they didn't make her a love interest. Yeah. Like, and like I'm forced so, like, yeah. a, like a kiss, like a kiss scene or something. Or anything. Yeah. Yes. Like, absolutely. I was like, um, so, like right at the end when she's like, um, she said, you better hurry now. And she hugs him. And I'm like, oh, thank God you didn't kiss him. Yeah. And I yeah. so appreciated that because it would have been an easy. Mm-hmm. Super. It would have been an easy thing for her to try to like persuade him in that manner. Yeah, absolutely. And she didn't. And you kind of get this like there's a mutual respect between the two of them. And I feel like that's the same for Elsa and Rick and Casablanca. Yes. Of what they're doing for the cause. Right. Um, and so I think there's a really heavy element of that as well, which I really, really enjoy. I'm absolutely. really glad you said all that because I don't know that I've ever made like a plot connection to it. But again, like yeah. I think there's something to say to like watching them back to back. Oh, for sure there is. Um, yeah. The obvious connections are that her name is Ilsa. Mm-hmm. And I was actually reading some articles before where Rebecca Ferguson thought it was a typo in the script. She thought it was supposed to say Lisa. Oh, really? Yeah. And because she was like, well, obviously it's supposed to say Lisa. And yeah. Christopher McQuarrie like came to her and he was like, Ilsa, get it? Like Casablanca. And she was yeah, like, oh, yeah, nudge. totally. Like she played it off like she got it. Yeah. She, was like, she oh, didn't yeah. at first. I knew that's what it was. She was like, I thought it was either supposed to be Lisa or, or a typo for Elsa. Okay. And not Ilsa because yeah. Ilsa is a very weird, it's not a normal like name that you would see in something. Yeah. And I feel like it's not, I don't, and I don't know for sure, but I don't feel like it would be like a British name no. either. Like it feels like German or, or yes. of that, you know, descent kind yes. of. Yes. So she's, I think that's really, it's an interesting choice. Like at the second, the first time I saw Rogue Nation, I was like, Ilsa, interesting. Yeah. Like, because you, 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 you don't, don't hear, hear it, it often. Yeah. You don't hear it at all. And I was the only other Ilsa I know is from Casablanca. Yeah. And then when I'm watching the movie and they show up in Casablanca and I was like, okay. <laughs> You're like, okay. This was on purpose. Wait a second. Yeah. yeah. This wasn't a mistake. <laughs> that um, is so cool. So that's a bit, obviously the most, you know, prevalent one is that her name is Ilsa. Yeah. Um, I think she looks like Ingrid Bergman. She does. Her eyes are a little different. She does. Um, but it's the nose and the mouth. Yeah. Um, and there's been a lot of comparisons to them looking like each other. Wow. Um, which I, I think is fascinating. For um, sure. Fun fact. I really did a deep dive on this after I got back from Rogue Nation. Yeah. The first time I watched it. Because I was like, this can't be on accident. They sound very similar. Their accents are very similar. Yes. They're both born in stockholm sweden really they're born in the same city i was so i was actually i was was thinking that right in that like last scene there of rogue nation and just listening to like rebecca ferguson talk i was like i don't i don't know what she sounds like no matter how many times i listen to her it's not a distinct accent if she has her own accent yeah and and you're right ilsa uh what's her what's her full uh ilsa faust or lund Ilsa Lund. Ilsa Lund. What's yeah. the a- actress's name? Ingrid Bergman. Ingrid Bergman. Yes. In Casablanca, she has a similar 
tone where you're like, I can't even tell what accent that like you can't yes. like really discern it. It's not specifically British. It's not German. Uh, yeah, it's Swedish. That's what their accent yeah, is. Right. I think it's probably an accent we just don't aren't used to hearing. Right. Um, exactly. Which I think is interesting. Um, let's see here. That's crazy. The other thing. So fun fact, the, the he really played up the whole Ingrid Bergman Swedish connection. So her dress in the opera sequence yellow is one. yellow and blue. Yeah. Has a blue ribbon on it, which is the Swedish flag. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And. I didn't notice it until I read the trivia fact today. And so I paid attention at the end. The car she drives off on in the end has a yellow and blue license plate. Oh, really? For Sweden. Very which nice. I thought was interesting. That's awesome. Um, let's see here. Do I have any other Casablanca connections? I mean, it ha- there's a scene in Casablanca. That's yeah, obvious. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty clear one. <laughs> she says Casablanca the same Casablanca. exact way that Ingrid Bergman says it. Yeah, and it's a very distinct yes. way. When I heard her say she it. She says, Now what brings you gentlemen to Casablanca? Yeah. And the way she says it, I rem- that was like honestly like the biggest trigger for me when I saw Rignation. I was like, that is exactly how Ingrid Bergman says it in <laughs> Casablanca. Yeah. You are our last hope. If you don't help us, Victor Lazar will die in Casablanca. And it is a very specific way. It it's, has to be their accent. It's like Casablanca. Casablanca. Like, yeah. It's yeah. this weird like finish to the word. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that was Ingrid Bergman. And I wonder <laughs> if she so channeled cool. Ingrid Bergman just like a little bit in that scene. Probably. The, you would think. So those are like the most overt, I think, Casablanca connections. It's very clear that Christopher McQuarrie is a fan of this of the movie. There's actually in my trivia facts, there's a lot of callbacks to different famous iconic movies in this movie. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that I love so much about Christopher McQuarrie and Tom Cruise, especially Tom Cruise, because you hear him, he just loves movies. He does. And like I've heard it said somewhere that he watches a movie a day, which I I think is awesome. Cameron's closing in on Tom Cruise on the movie a day. I am. I'm really (laughs) you got a great rate going right now. That's right. He's he's coming up on Tom Cruise. But I think he's such a, a student of cinema. Um, and I think you can really see that come through, especially in some of his later stuff. I think once he started producing things, yeah. but I think it's really, really neat what he does kind of some callbacks to older movies. And we'll talk about that here in a bit. Was it interesting for you like to watch it through like a little bit of a different lens? Yes, it definitely was. It definitely was because I mean, I I feel like when you watch you, when you go into a mission impossible movie, you kind of are looking for certain things. Uh, and so to kind of try and like track, like I, you know, like I talked about with like the the underlying plot stuff and yes. whatever to kind of like track along with that and like pay attention to kind of like smaller details. Yeah. It's like a different and, you know, whenever you're watching a movie to talk about it afterwards. Right. You pay a little bit more attention. It, yeah. It becomes a different viewing experience altogether. But right. but the added layer of like how how does this connect Casablanca and like just trying to look for parallels and stuff like that it becomes like a totally different viewing experience where you're you're not I mean obviously you appreciate like all the action scenes and and the stuff like that but you you start paying attention to like smaller stuff that, that might not stick out to you in like other viewings yeah and I think there was actually a lot of um, I noticed this the first time I watched it and you pointed out one of them when we were watching it but I think Christopher McQuarrie actually this is the first one of the series so obviously this is five Mm -hmm. of six that have now come out and there's going to be a seventh and an eighth one that they're filming right now Mm -hmm. um this is the first one that kind of connected the other four to this movie yes so they're pretty standalone 
For the um, most part, yeah. For the most part. And really any of them, you can kind of jump in. I had Corbin went and we saw Fallout. Uh, I, I had talked about it in the yeah. Mission Impossible episode, but we went to see it at the IMAX headquarters. Yeah. I got, you know, randomly got the tickets and she hadn't seen any of them. And I was like, okay, well, you might need to see five before yeah. you see six. Yeah. And there's some other information you need to know. Yeah. But for the most part, you can jump in. Um, but I think Christopher McQuarrie made a concerted effort to pay homage to the ones previously in the series yeah. um, in very small ways. And the in the opening and part of the open, not the opening sequence, it's the plane sequence, which we'll talk about. <laughs> but there's in the beginning part of the movie, Alec Baldwin is somebody in the CIA. I don't know if we ever really know who he is in the He's like head of the CIA yeah, or something. Yeah, they don't he's really a big explain guy. his position, but he's up high. Yeah, for sure. he's basically like talking to this panel of judges and saying that they need to dismantle the IMF because they wreaked all this havoc. Yeah. He references the fourth mission impossible. He talks about them blowing up the Kremlin. Yeah. Which is in ghost protocol. Yep. Um, and he talks about them revealing state secrets, which is them stealing the knock list in the first mission impossible. Yes. Um, so there's two explicit references to the two other movies. One that you pointed out, is when Ilsa comes in to rescue him from his uh, imprisonment. Yeah. What is on the keychain? It's it's a rabbit's tail. Yes. Right, which is a connection to the rabbit's foot. Yes. From and Mission Impossible 3. Yes. So the, the big device that they're stealing is the rabbit's foot. Yeah. In um, the third Mission Impossible. So there's a little connection there. After he escapes... There is a callback to the first Mission Impossible where he goes into the phone booth and he calls Brant at the IMF. Yeah. Which is like him calling uh, Kittredge in the first movie from Prague. Yes. And they specifically show a shot. And I thought this the first time I saw it. When he's in the phone booth, he's been shot. Mm -hmm. And he is pressing against the blood. And then he looks at his hands. And they're bloody and it's from above. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that is an exact shot that is in Mission Impossible One when Jim Phelps gets shot on the bridge right before he falls into the water. Yeah. So he's got the he's got the camera on his glasses and Ethan's watching. Yeah. And it shows him look down at his hands and you can see all the blood and then he falls into the river. And I was like, I'm pretty right. sure, I'm pretty sure that's a callback to Mission Impossible One. I think you also, are right. I think so too. Also, he exits the phone booth and he doesn't have shoes on, which is a callback to Ghost Protocol, where he's running through the streets with no shoes on. He's if, got the coat and he doesn't have any shoes. If I can jump in for a second yes. with the no shoes thing. So we did a double feature of The Shining and Doctor Sleep yes, yesterday. Yes, we did. We've had a lot of double features. Yeah, we have. We've been watching a lot of movies. Yeah. Um, Rebecca Ferguson is the main villain uh -huh. in Dr. Sleep. And throughout that movie, she's not wearing shoes very often. She's like hardly ever wearing hardly shoes. Hardly ever wearing shoes. Yeah. First scene that we see her in Rogue Nation, she takes, she her, takes her shoes, shoes off. off. That's so funny. Later on, after the opera scene, she, she makes him shoes. take yes. her shoes off. <laughs> and then you're right. He's not wearing shoes coming out of yes. the phone booth. And then the movie before that. In, in Ghost Protocol, yeah. he has the running scene without yes. shoes. And so I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> what is the deal with, with them and the shoes? No shoes thing. I but it's, it's Rebecca Ferguson for sure. But Tom Cruise also has a no yes. shoes thing going on in yeah. these movies as well. Well, it's funny because Dr. Sleep would have come out after this. So I wonder if that was an homage to Mission Impossible it, it Rogue Nation. Been, yeah. She does wear shoes, however, in all Fallout. So it, she does. Yeah. She does. Um, when, what is Simon Pegg's character's name? 
Benji. Benji. <laughs> when Benji's when we first see Benji in this movie, he's at his computer at the CIA mm-hmm. and he takes his gum out and he sticks it on the CIA logo, which is a callback to Mission Impossible One with the gum where he the explosive gum. Yeah. And he shoves it on the window oh of the gosh. helicopter and it explodes, right? Yeah. That is um, awesome. The Oh, when they're interviewing Benji at the CIA and he's on the he's doing the lie detector test Mm -hmm. and he says, are you suggesting I'm helping him? That's a callback to Mission Impossible 3, where he actually is the only one that helps him find his wife. Yes. Remember that? Yeah. yeah. So that's a huge like he's like like he makes it seem like he's never done that before. And it's like, (laughs) no, you did it in three. You did in three. The only one I can think of that they don't the only callback to two is the motorcycle chase. Yeah. But that seems like a loose connection. Yeah, right. The other call another callback to Mission Impossible Three. So when they're leaving the Vienna Opera House mm-hmm. and um they run out and he almost falls off the roof and she grabs him. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. In Mission Impossible Three, when he catapults onto the building in Shanghai, he almost falls off the edge of that building too. Oh yeah. That's which I right. think is interesting. Yep. And yep. that may be the only those, that might be the last callback that I have. That's I think it is. But there's a lot. I think it shows like Christopher McQuarrie was like, he's a fan of the series, right? Yep. And so he paid a lot of homage to the movies that came before. And I, I do really, really appreciate that. I think that's something. I mean, we were talking about Tom Cruise and how he loves movies. And like, you can tell that McQuarrie does as well. I think mm-hmm. that's something that really like, it makes it like, it makes a difference mm-hmm. when there's like, uh, these people are given like kind of creative control mm-hmm. over what they're trying to do. And they have like a very strong endearment, not only for maybe the IP that they're working with, but also just film in general. And like you get it just it just comes through like the attention to detail that Macquarie and Cruz have is like with stunts. Yeah. With cinematography, with, you know, plot, you know, whatever is like you can tell. That's why these movies have gotten progressively better as they've gone, because now like you get Macquarie and Cruz together and yes, and five and six. And like they they just seem to be like kind of hitting a groove where so those two just kind of click together because yes. of their appreciation for not only like stunts, but the Mission Impossible franchise and yep. film in general and yep. gen- you know, generally and you just feel it. You know what I'm saying? And it really does make a difference because you can watch all these like big budget movies, um, you know, whether they're great, not great, whatever. There's a different feeling to watching movies when you can tell that the person loves what they're doing. Right. It's just different. And like stealing from the greats. Like that's what I think is great. And I think like when he, there's been so many like press junkets and interviews and stuff where Christopher McQuarrie talks about, they all love Rebecca Ferguson Mm -hmm. and she is, I will just say it. She's the reason this movie is so much better. Yes. I think. Oh, yeah. Than the rest of the Mission Impossible franchising. She's in six. She's not in it as much as she is in this movie. Um, she's still in it a good amount. Yeah. Um, but I think that she set this movie apart. She's the first woman in the franchise that really holds her own. Yeah. But the way Christopher McQuarrie, they said it in a bunch of press junkets that he basically like he named her Ilsa for a reason and it's cutesy because she's from the same part of Sweden as Ingrid Bergman and like yeah. whatever but his approach to this character which is why I'm like Christopher McQuarrie just like crawled inside my head and created like the perfect movie <laughs> is he's like what if a classy actress from the golden era of Hollywood was also a badass action star. Yeah. And I'm like, two of my favorite things. (laughs) This is incredible. Yeah. And Rebecca Ferguson just exudes that like class. She's also, she's always like one of those people too. Like, I think I realized, um, 
you know, she's in the greatest showman. Yeah. And, you know, there's the whole love story between Zac Efron and Zendaya. Yeah. And there's actually a much larger age gap between Zac Efron and Zendaya than there is between Zac Efron and Rebecca Ferguson. Really? Which is shocking. Because to me, Zac Efron is still 17 somehow in my mind, yeah. even though he's not. Yeah. But Rebecca Ferguson has this like maturity Big time. to her yeah. that you're like, yeah, I believe that she like, I believe she could we could remake Casablanca and she could play Ingrid Bergman's character. She could be Ilsa Lund. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. she would she would totally fulfill that role. But I also believe her as this badass action star. It is crazy. And I think there's this concept of like the modern woman mm-hmm. and especially like the modern action star, which I am all game for. I mean, I've talked about it like ad nauseum on this podcast, but like Jennifer Garner and alias, I think was a huge catalyst for female action stars yeah. in the modern era. And that thing's been out for almost 20 years now, alias. Yeah. And I really think that that, and that was JJ, which is a huge, he's got a huge hand in the mission impossible franchise, yes. but I think there's this, like toughness that they have to have. But I think what he did with Ilsa was there's this toughness that she have, but there's also this like softness that she has. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't think of anybody else who could play that. Like Rebecca Ferguson. I, yeah. I mean, nobody pops to my mind no. immediately. Like the, the only other person that I can like the pops in my head immediately is, is Scarlett Johansson playing black widow, but there's not yes. that, level of like classy yeah right to like pull that off like yeah. Scarlett Johansson is like very good in that yes. role and like she's very they believable her, they could make her look 1940s glam yeah they definitely could but she hers is like just much like a much more raw like action yes. based role that she yeah. does with, with Black Widow but Rebecca Ferguson is just and I think I think they do like a really good job of at least for like the modern like woman action yeah. hero and stuff like that like they don't when they do it well it's like they don't lean on like this overarching like theme of like femininity or something yeah. you know where they try and like yeah. lighten yeah the mood with like how much of a badass yeah she is like they don't she just it, gets the job done it's like unapologetically yeah. because like you know like i feel like you see that like a lot um and like stuff like from the past and even now with like female characters that that have like a like a stronger edge to them is yeah. that they always the directors or the actresses or whatever always feel like they have to like soften yeah. that edge to make it more approachable. But you're right. Like there's like this level of like classiness and it's unapologetically like just badass yeah. and that she just crushes it so well. Yeah. And it's not like patronizing. Yeah. They don't over sexualize her in this movie, which I really appreciate. Yes. Like there's definitely like there's some scenes like even when they're at the opera house, like she has the dress on with like the really large slit on it. But it's never like a lot right do you know what i mean right. and it's always in a way that like makes her look like a badass yeah and then the, all, the other thing i always think of so she when they show up in casablanca casablanca um <laughs> she's coming out of a pool and she's yeah. testing her oxygen so it's not she's doing something functional right right like right. this is something that she's doing as a spy right that she should be doing and she could be coming out of the pool in the skimpiest bikini in the world right and she's not no, yeah she has like a tank top on yeah and like pretty modest you know bathing suit bottoms and i'm like they don't over sexualize her and i think that demeans women for sure um in action roles like even they didn't do it to paula Patton in ghost protocol but they almost like everything about her was 
like they didn't give her like acting chops in that movie. Yeah. Like it was all like, hey, you're a badass in this scene, but then like you're nothing in the other scenes. Yeah. And I feel like with Rebecca Ferguson, they made a really good point of and they talked about this all the time about how like she was supposed to be Ethan Hunt's equal. Yeah. And she is. Like yes. You believe yes. in this movie. Like I even wrote like at the end when there's there's a chase scene where they're literally running through the streets of London. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and she's keeping up with him. Yeah. Nobody keeps up with Tom Cruise. Right. That's the thing. Right. Exactly. Like, Tom Cruise can run faster than anybody. So Ethan fast. Hunt can run faster than anybody. And the fact that she's keeping up with him is even just like a visual marker of like, no, she is equal with Ethan right. Hunt. And even like her scene with uh the uh, the bone doctor. Yes. And the knife fight and everything like that. It's like another one where it's like he obviously has like the size advantage and yeah. you know, whatever. And she's still able to just basically like dominate him. And it's like, yes. it just, yeah, it's just not, it's, I feel like it's the right way to do like the female. Yeah. Like they they really, really crushed it with this movie. And I yeah. pulled up some articles that kind of talk about that, but literally like there's, there's a bunch of articles that came out around the time the movie was released. And it said, imagine the 1940s Casablanca star, Egrim Bergman reincarnated as a 21st century action babe. And you have a pretty good approximation of Rebecca Ferguson on screen. <laughs> That's awesome. It's like, they talk about, you know, not by accident. Does a major story development happen in Casablanca? One of the films, many frantic and scenic global stops. And the Stockholm-born Ferguson strongly resembles fellow Swede Ingrid Bergman, who starred opposite Humphrey Bogart in the classic wartime romance situated and titled After the Moroccan Desert City. You know, and Ferguson's Ilsa, like Bergman's Ilsa Lund, makes for a worthy obsession. She's a true femme fatale, one who is every bit Hunt's match physically and mentally. And so I think they really, really put a lot of thought into i don't know i feel like there's a lot of like action franchises i think they do a pretty good job of it in the marvel universe mm-hmm. i feel like they've done an incredible job with brie larson as captain marvel yeah scarlett johansson as black widow um i think they've done a really good job with that but i think there's a tendency in action movies and some of it's like i think of like atomic blonde with like Charlize theron mm-hmm. where they, it's really it's been more recent stuff where it feels like they've come out of this kitschy female action star phase <laughs> yeah um where they're actually giving them more not just physical like fight scenes but like the intellectual side of it yes um which i think is has been really really cool but i don't think i've seen anybody else do it the way christopher mccrory does it where I, it's I like agree. even her wardrobe like everything about her wardrobe she wears trench coats like like classic 1940s trench coats yeah the dress she wears to the opera is very 1940s with a modern flair yeah everything like all, it's clear that they thought through you know when she wears the trench coat she but she's wearing like more of like uh skinny leg jeans uh-huh. where it's like that's more modern but it's paired with this right classic piece right um when they're talking about breaking into the uh caldera which i think is the most fun word to say <laughs> um the liquid cooled caldera she's wearing an old school type button down it's satin which is very 1940s yeah actually paying attention to that in casablanca she wears a satin dress Ilsa Lund does and yeah. it's very it's a very short scene it's during their little montage of them being in love in Paris yeah um, but I was like even that's kind of a callback yep um, so I think they they did a really really good job and I think that's why I love this movie so much is because it's such a callback to classic Hollywood with the mixture of this like modern I think that's what's so cool about what Christopher McQuarrie has done with the Mission Impossible universe is he's really made his two movies that he's done timeless Yes. Where if you go back and you watch any of the other Mission Impossibles, 
they're dated. Yes. By the technology. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Never feels dated or it never feels like it will be dated. Right. Um, he gets his first mission and he plays it on a record player. Right. Which is timeless. It is. You know it's, what I mean? Like that, so that never perfect. goes out of it's very retro in kind of a way. Yeah. Um, and I love that. And he did it in the sixth one too. And I'm excited to see what he'll do because you sometimes you watch the older ones and it just takes you out of it. Yeah, well, because like in, in the older ones, like there is like a very overt reliance on like technology. a certain type yeah. of technology. Floppy disks. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> like you see it throughout there. But it's like McCory does a good job of like subverting the technology that's going into like pulling these like scenes off. Yeah. Um he's not like highlighting I'm like look at this cool tech yeah. it's like it's look just at this a, flip phone yeah, yeah it's like it's just a part of the job <laughs> at the time yes. right so it doesn't like stick out to you like look at how cool this yeah. is and then 10 years from now you're like look what is this yeah. like what, what is this supposed to be he like, relies so, so much more on like the actual spy craft right of like what it means to be a spy and not so much the technology mm-hmm. which I appreciate and I think I can say with confidence that this may not be the best mission impossible in terms of like objectivity yeah it's the classiest oh for sure mission impossible for sure it is like it is just full of class i think there's so many sequences that speak to that and fallout's yeah. like amazing with stunt stuff it, it is <laughs> it is the best action movie yeah. probably ever made yeah um, the stunts and the fight choreography yes. and like all of the stuff that they pull off is just and unbelievable so, i oscillate so much between i'm like i'm like rogue nation's my favorite and then i'll watch fallout and i'm like <laughs> I don't know. Is it but then I go back to Rogue Nation. And I'm like, no, no, no. Yeah. This is the this yeah. is the one. Yeah. Um, and mostly because like I just love the introduction of Ilsa Faust like to the Mission Impossible franchise. Mm-hmm. I think it's great, and I love it. Yeah, it's so um, it feels so key to like the success they've had. Yes, it feels like a turning point in the franchise. Mm-hmm. Like it feels like it elevated. Like Ghost for Protocol sure. did a lot for the franchise. They all they all bring something to it. Absolutely. Um. But I think the fifth one, and I think it speaks to the fact that like they've kept Christopher McQuarrie on. For yes. the, I think the eighth one's it's gonna have to be the last. It has to be Al, at least just, yeah, at least with Tom. Is, yeah, he's yeah. not gonna survive. No um, so when this is all said and done, he'll have directed fifty percent of the Mission Impossible franchise, and I think yeah. that's in large part due to how he did on Rogue Nation. Absolutely, um, I think so too. And it's clear that he and Tom Cruise kind of have a connection, yeah, um, because they've done a lot of stuff together, mm-hmm. and so I think that makes a ton of sense. Yep, absolutely. All right, so let's walk through the set pieces of this movie. Yep. And um, I was funny because I was like taking notes, and I was like, I gotta take notes because I'm gonna forget stuff. And I literally was like, I know every scene of this movie. Yeah, yeah, what like am I, I talking I about? So opening sequence, like the franchise has some good openings. Mm-hmm. This one is a doozy. And it is hard to top. Yeah. So you've all seen it because even if you haven't seen the movie, you've seen the stunt. Yes. It's been all over social yes. media. It was before, you know, this movie even came out. But this is the opening sequence where he is on the outside of a plane <laughs> holding on for dear life. And it's not fake. It's very it's real. real. It's very real. And they did it eight times. Take off to landing. And he had to have special contacts made so that he could keep his eyes open. Yeah, so he could. And he could. He said so many times. I mean, there's a behind the scenes feature out on the on the stuff, but it's like he couldn't see with the contacts in, and he was also (laughs) wearing like protective gear because literally like a pebble. At that speed, yeah. Yeah, at that speed, could have killed him or a bird or something. Oh yeah. It's crazy. Yep. Um, but he and I think honestly, like the fourth movie, I think is where he really figured this out. 
I think Tom Cruise, for how crazy he is, he's a genius. He figured out how to market himself. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I talked a lot about it in Ghost Protocol um, about how this was the first... Ghost Protocol was the first Mission Impossible after the whole Katie Holmes incident. Yeah. Yep. And he really figured out a way to channel the crazy Tom Cruise energy that people had about him into his <laughs> career instead of his personal life. Yeah. I don't know how he made that switch. I don't know either. Well, he's a genius. He really pulled it off very well. And so they marketed the crap out of this stunt before the movie ever came out. And then when I went to see it, I was like, oh, it's the opening scene. There it is right there. I had just figured it was like the climax of the movie. Yeah. And it actually doesn't have anything to do with the movie. No, not at all. Really, It's a true cold open. Yeah. And that you don't even know what he's going after. Yeah. But the package just needs to get off the plane. Yep. That's all, all we know. That's all you know. Um, And so he runs out. He jumps on the wing of the plane. And then he's on the side. It's a great scene because Benji screws it up, which is. Yeah. In the ghillie suit. In yes. The, in, the, in the grass, which is a great touch. <laughs> I love that so much. It's the best opening shot, dude, because this is an like empty field and it's like Minsk, yeah. Belarus. And then he just pops up with his little goggles <laughs> and his little ghillie suit. It's the best. So good. And they're all involved. He's got Brant, Benji, Luther's involved. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets on the plane. He's riding on the side of it. It is. I saw it in IMAX mm-hmm. when it came out and it was something. Yeah. Like it's not. I wouldn't put it on the same par as the Burj Khalifa. But it's still nuts. Yeah. It, it wasn't it really as is. like panic inducing as the Burj Khalifa. I feel like when the camera shot comes up over in Ghost Protocol and you see how high up he is, that's terrifying. I feel like I feel like it's easier for you to believe when you're watching it that the airplane thing isn't real as yeah. opposed to the Burj Khalifa. Yeah. Because what they do is like they, the way that they shoot the Burj Khalifa scene and everything like that, like it just feels you're like this feels like real because you feel like you're out there with them but when you're watching them on the plane you're like immediately probably like oh like you know i, I don't really know how they shot this but there's yeah. no way he's actually on the outside of a plane yeah. it's like taking off right yeah. so like it has like maybe like a little bit disconnect less, yeah yeah like shock value yeah. to it but once you realize that that yeah. was he was actually out there doing that it does it gets a lot crazier well, and they like they had to create a, a specific camera rig for this that didn't exist oh, which gosh. they ended up doing again in fallout for the helicopter sequence yep. and then did again in top gun 2 which still hasn't come out yet yeah um he's really pioneering a lot of cinematography i think in action movies yeah. which is pretty cool but they had to mount it to the side of the plane but it had to have like a stabilizer in it obviously this thing's like shaking yeah. you know forever and i think the coolest thing is that it's like that's how you know it's real. There's so many things that they do in these movies that like you're like, okay, that was real because the camera doesn't move. Yeah. It's clearly mounted on the side of the plane and you see it like as it's coming down the runway. And then as soon as the plane starts to pitch, like because it's going up and you see the ground underneath of him, you're like, holy crap. Yeah. Because the camera comes up yeah. with it. Right? It's like, on the same real. angle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you can <sighs> see on his face. And I remember like I if you like behind the scenes stuff, which again was like all over social media, Christopher McQuarrie was like terrified and he's in the plane. Like Christopher McQuarrie is like in the plane and he kept telling like, he's like, I'm just worried that 
like you're gonna freak out like you're gonna freeze like whatever and tom cruise is like listen whatever happens don't stop rolling and i'm like <laughs> you are a crazy person and he's like yes. i'm gonna act like i'm freaking out because i would be freaking out yeah but i'm just acting right like don't say cut yeah like it's fine i'm just gonna do it and they ended up doing it eight times which i think is the craziest thing That's in the world nuts. like they would just land and be like okay roll it again <laughs> let's do it again guys yeah so it's crazy Gosh. it's one of the most um it is one of the craziest sequences in Mission Impossible. It's just crazy to me that Tom Cruise thought he could do it. Oh, yeah. Like, no, just strap me to the outside of a it's plane. Like, I'll be fine. I'll guys. be fine. It's going to be fine. What could go wrong? Yeah. So many <laughs> things, Tom Cruise. So many things. The That ends up, obviously, goes into the, the opening title sequence. That's one of my favorite opening title sequences of the franchise. Great. They do kind of a, a Bond thing where they show mm-hmm. stuff from the movie, which is really fun. Yeah, I love um, that. And the first thing we start, so this kicks off the movie. This is the main plot point, and Ethan Hunt shows up to a record store yep. in London, yep. in downtown London, and this is the first time in the freaking a million times that I've seen this movie that I paid attention to the name of the record store. Did you see it? <laughs> I did see it, but now I can't. I can't remember the what it was. Vinyl offer. The vinyl offer. That's and right. And I was like, it's a pun. <laughs> I love that. That is great. I was like, great. this. That is hilarious. I've never noticed it. And I was like, why in a Mission Impossible movie would you insert a pun? A pun Whatever. right there I for the it. store. Um, That's good. And then he has this conversation with the record store clerk, and they have this banter. It's all code. Yeah. You know, you know, she's like Shadow Wilson played the bass and he's like Shadow Wilson played the drums. Yeah. She's trying to trip him up or whatever. And he says, you know why they call him Shadow? Because he had a light touch. <laughs> so there's all this like fun, you know, bands or whatever. And yeah. she finally gives him the the record to go play to get his mission. Yep. There's these little personal record player rooms. And as he's walking away, she says, it really is you. I've heard stories. They can't all be true. And he turns back and he kind of smirks at her and keeps walking. And I think that was such a, you know, this would have been Tom Cruise on the really on the other side of the whole Katie Holmes incident. Yeah. And Tom Cruise at this point, by the time Rogue Nations come out, I think it really hit its peak and fallout. He's almost a myth, a legend yeah. in his own mind, right? Yeah. What he's been able to do specifically in the stunt world yes. is insanity. It really is. Yeah. Nobody in their right mind would be like strapping to the side of a plane. Yeah. All the stuff he's pulled off. I think it's such a funny line to put in the movie, but it's so great because it has such a double meaning. Like mm-hmm. Ethan Hunt's done all this crazy stuff. Right. So it is her talking to him as Ethan Hunt. Yeah. But I think there's such a nod to him as Tom Cruise. I think so too. Like yeah. I've always loved that line. Cause I'm like, it feels like such a nod to him as a person. Yep. Um, I agree. So he goes, he gets his mission on the thing, but it turns out it's not the IMF. It's the syndicate. It is a syndicate and they've infiltrated his mission, (laughs) which I always think one of my, this is honestly, this scene alone should not, should give it not a hundred on a scale of one to a hundred because Tom Cruise's reactions in the scene are ludicrous. (laughs) They are. They're nuts. It almost, it always bothers me like a little bit. Oh yeah. I agree. Where he's like overreacting to the fact that they're taking over the mission. And then like, they're like, where's the syndicate? And then he like grabs the desk and like pulls up to the screen and it zooms in on him. And I'm like, okay, that's a little much. But I, I, the other thing too in that scene is that I, f- I feel like he, his initial reaction to like how 
the mission was unfolding to him and yeah. being told to him. Like it was strange from the get go. Yeah, he's like and very he had, intense. And he had like no reaction to it, and then all of a sudden they start talking about like yeah. taking over the mission. Then he's like, "What?" It reminds what? me of the Harvey Dent scene in The Dark Knight <laughs> yes. when the Joker takes the mask off and he's like, "Oh, yeah." It's like, <laughs> like not, dude, it's not that. Yeah, it's so obvious that that's the Joker. His whole face was white. <laughs> How did you not see that? That's what it reminded me of. Yeah, though. that's right. absolutely true. It's a total overreacting, and I'm like, I. That is overacting. Yeah. Like, like, almost to the point of like, they would say like Jim Carrey's like an overactor. Yeah. And it was almost like that. Like, it was, it's almost comedic. Mm -hmm. But so he gets, you know, instead of your mission will self-destruct in five seconds, like it does at the end of every mission, mm -hmm. they basically pump gas into this room and he can't get out. Yeah. So he's gassed. And he looks out the window, you know, now he's looking after the record girl because I'm sure he's concerned that something's happening. Yeah. And we see the villain of this movie, Solomon Lane, yep. shoot her in cold blood in the middle of this record store. Yeah. And that is how the movie is kicked off. Then we go to Alec Baldwin and uh, Jeremy Renner mm -hmm. as Brant. And that, that was a scene I was talking about before where Alec Baldwin as head of the CIA is talking about dismantling the IMF. Yep. He starts going through all of these you know, ways that the IMF has screwed up over the years, which is kind of funny because you start like they start listing all the stuff off and you're like, yeah, they you're like they have caused a lot of dest destruction. Yeah, they have. it's not like <laughs> it's it's pretty crazy. Yep. He says uh, that one of the judge says your results look suspicious, suspiciously like luck, basically. So every time they do something right, they just got lucky. Yeah, right. They're not necessarily good at their jobs. Then we cut to Ethan Hunt being captured yep he's handcuffed to this pole in the ground mm -hmm. and enter our favorite character ilsa faust, ilsa faust. Um, where she removes her shoes she does so she's coming in to torture him mm -hmm. right she's going to extract information from him so she puts the rabbit's foot little keychain on the table um but she starts unloading all these serums right that she's going to inject into him and before she can even get started the bone doctor the bone doctor um comes in such he's a good name gnarly little ring on not little it's huge yeah it looks like it could do some damage no doubt and <laughs> they start speaking in fun fact swedish oh really because he is also swedish no way the actor who plays the bone doctor that's very so they're funny. like whatever we're just gonna have you speak in your native tongue they're disagreeing on how to get the information out of ethan and the bone <laughs> i love one of ethan's favorite lines he's like i like your shoes it's he's talking to the bone doctor it seems yeah and they both look confused and he's like not you you and he's talking about her shoes that she's removed that she's taken so off they're yeah. drawing it's not even that she's not wearing shoes is that they draw attention, they're drawing to, the attention shoes to it twice yes two separate times yes so he so says weird. you better leave before this gets messy and ethan agrees with him and um ilsa turns around and she shows him that she has the key yep and she kind of nods i will say that's the one cool thing about this movie they're always in sync there's so many times in this movie where they don't say anything they yeah. just kind of like nod at each other. And it's like they know what the other person is thinking. They just kind of like click right away. Yes, they totally click. Like you like get the chemistry. Mm -hmm. And I will say this movie follows. So if, if you've been listening to the podcast or you're watching the movies, the third movie, he gets married. Fourth movie, he's not married, but he's still looking after his wife. Yeah. Rogue Nation, no wife. No mention of the wife. Not at all. Nothing. Never brought up. So it's this weird thing where, like, if you're a fan of the franchise, you're like, they're kind of connecting. But, like, I feel weird because Julia. You're right. You know what remember I mean? Julia? Like, yeah. Like, it's you kind of get that he needs to move on because he can't be with her. Yeah. And they're not married anymore. But the, still, it, the fourth one ends with him kind of, like, looking out for her. Yeah. So you feel kind of like this weird, like they're connecting, but like on what level? Like, is it romantic? Is it professional? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. <laughs> and 
uh, she kind of nods and he kicks the, he just like rears up and does like a double kick to the chest of the bone doctor and he knocks him out. Yeah. <laughs> like he hits this Rendo, pipe. Like pipe. Yeah. It is the coolest fight scene. We were both it's talking so about it afterwards. So I was good. like, it's so well, good. I just, I just love when Ethan like folds back in on yes. himself and like jumps his way up Uses the pole. Uses his entire upper body strength to get off of the pole. Yeah. For some reason, that's just one of my favorite scenes of like all the Mission Possible yeah. is like him doing that because it's just such a cool visual. It's such a badass like, thing where you're is. like, of course, Tom Cruise can do that. Exactly. And like, it's just and awesome. And you can totally tell it's him, obviously. Yep. And I was like, of course, Tom Cruise's shirt is off. Um, and Shirtless Tom. Yes. Uh, he literally, like you said, takes it's like all of his upper body strength to just like shimmy his way up this pole and then he gets to the top and he like launches himself off which by the way while he's doing this Ilsa's just kicking butt oh yeah taking Every, names all the other henchmen in the room she's just yeah the best them. thing of the whole fight scene though so she basically gets this guy in a headlock with her legs yeah and chokes him out with her legs yeah and you're just like Holy crap. Whoa. She is going to kill somebody. Yeah. And so they get kind of both their like time to shine. And he kind of lands on her once he like kicks everybody down. And he's like, we don't know each other. Right. <laughs> like, it's kind of like this like acknowledgement of like we are really kind of clicking. Yeah. Here, and, it's, and it's like and it's good for the audience too to know, like, we're not supposed to know uh, yeah. them, her from somewhere else. Right. right. She is a new character. Right. Exactly. And she basically helps him escape. Right. So she's she shows him the key. She fights off all the guys with him and then helps him escape. Mm -hmm. But then he thinks that she's coming with her. Yeah. Him. Yeah. And she's like, no, I can't go with you. Like, I, I'll blow my cover. Yeah. Basically, she doesn't say that. But he, she's like, you escaped, you know, and all this stuff. And she starts yelling in Swedish back at the guards that he's escaping. Yeah. So and that's where he gets shot. Yep. Right before he calls the because IMF. Because he stands at the gate for way too long, I which know. always bothers me. Every time I watch this, I'm like, run! I'm like, you are not that far away from the corner where they're coming from, <laughs> and you have a long way to go. Yes. And I know you're fast, but yeah. they're shooting down a very narrow. Yes. Every time I'm like, way. what are you doing? Run! <laughs> it's almost like he's in shock. Yeah. But she says, "You better hurry now." Before she shuts the gate mm -hmm. and sends him on the other side of it to run, which comes back later in the movie. Uh, but he gets shot inside yep. um, from all of that. And he calls the IMF and it's Brant that picks up. Yeah. And he finds out on that phone call that the IMF has been disbanded. Yep. Like it's dismantled. It's no, it's no longer an organization. And, uh, that so he basically like Brant kind of gives him this and I always wondered too like if they thought maybe this might be the last mission impossible because he says in that phone call he says this might be our last mission yeah and I was I always think like I'm like did they think that was still the last one which isn't crazy because Tom Cruise is in his 50s right, when they right. shot it but they he's basically on his own but Alec Baldwin who plays uh the director of the, what is his name in this movie did they say I, I don't I it's uh, Hundley, right? No, that's the British guy. No, it's Atley. Oh, it is Hundley. I think it's, Hun I think it's director Hundley. Yes, you're that's right. That's what they call him. How yeah. did they name them so close? I that's don't know. the dumbest that is thing bizarre. I've ever heard. Yeah, Lee. Um, Lee. I know. Come on. Oh, yeah, directly <laughs> Hunt. That's right. So he uh, he's having a conversation with Brant. He knows he just got off the phone with Ethan Hunt. Yeah. And Brant's not giving up his position. And one of the best lines and he says hunt is both arsonist and fireman at the same time yeah and his theory 
is that Ethan sets fires so that he can put them out and be the hero. Yeah. And so he thinks that he's making up the syndicate. The syndicate, and he's just going around causing chaos and yeah. then trying to solve it right. under the guise that the that's hero. what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. Which is not a completely invalid it's true. Perception if you don't know the situation. Right. If you're just looking at it from the outside. I can see why Director Hunley would think that that might be happening. Yes. So he says, set your watch. Ethan Hunt is living his last day as a free man. And then immediately <laughs> it cuts to a title card that says six months later. And it's the best <laughs> joke in the whole movie. And I'm like, why didn't they win anything for editing? This is so funny. It's so good. Yeah. It's so good. Just right afterwards. Because Ethan's still a free man six months later and they're still trying to hunt him down. Mm-hmm. Hunt. Hunt, hunt. <laughs> <laughs> and we get a glimpse of Tom Cruise with a beard. I have it written down right here. I said the Cruise beard is so rare. <laughs> I know. And it's so fake. It looks so bad. Oh, yeah. It looks awful. I don't even know. I'm not even sure Tom Cruise can grow a beard, if I'm being totally honest. Like, I look at I, mean, I look at him, like, in, in movies and stuff like that. And you can see that, like, because he's normally clean shaven. Right. But you can see that, like, there's... There's definitely like remnants of hair there. I've just literally never seen it like past like a clean shaven. Yeah. So it's hard to tell like could he grow like I'm a pretty good beard or not. I think if there's any movies I've watched, I don't think he's had a beard in any of his movies. I don't. I can't uh, remember. Last Samurai. Oh yeah, he does have a beard in Last Samurai. Does he? Yeah, it's not I've like I've watched it. Clearly, I can't remember. I'm picturing like the. I don't even know if this is actually like the cover, but I'm picturing the cover of the movie, and for some reason, it's just Tom Cruise like in like the samurai yes. thing. I'm pretty sure he has like a short brown beard. Okay, we're gonna have to do some research after we get off the mm-hmm. podcast. Because yeah. now I'm like, holy crap, have I watched a whole movie where he has a beard and I don't remember it? But it's clear in this one it's fake because it doesn't match his hair color. Yeah. Not that like it always has to match. I mean, your beard's a little bit redder than right. your hair, but like it's usually like you can usually tell. Yes. It looked really light in this movie. It did. And, and it kind of didn't. It looked like it was attached to his face instead of a part of his face, which is normally yes. kind of the giveaway for <laughs> if this is a fake beard or not. We could see the glue, Tom Cruise. Yeah, right, right. We could see that it was glued to your face. <laughs> That was not growing out of your skin. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you lie. (laughs) Um, There's a drawing of Rebecca Ferguson, Ilsa Faust, and Solomon Lane. Yes. um, On this board. So that's kind of our first clue that he's... Those are the only two people that he's really seen, except for the bone doctor. Yeah. And so... We we go to... They obviously... It's a great scene, because you feel like they're going to catch him. Yeah. The way it's cut is that the CIA is breaking into the safe house. Yeah, it's and they're gonna insane. find him and they bust down the door and then it just cuts to Ethan looking over at the door and the door's shut. And they've broken into somewhere he's been. Yep. Used but not to somewhere be. he is. Yeah. And they he kinda of, you get the feeling like, oh, he set them up. He yeah. knew that that's that they were. And he has like a for camera him. set up in the room where he can <laughs> see them. Yeah. And so it's clear that maybe this has happened a couple of times where yeah. he's led them on, right? Left some breadcrumbs. And so, but they kind of gather that information that he's left Posted there. there for them. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, Brant and, uh, Benji and, you know, um, Hunley, like they're all getting this information because now Benji works for the CIA. So basically yeah. the, anybody who was left in the IMF with the exception of Luther, who we find out just retired. Yeah. They're all kind of working for the CIA, but they're not happy about it. No, they're not thrilled to be there. It cuts to Benji, like playing like Halo or something. Yeah, Halo at his, at his computer. <laughs> at his desk yeah. at the CIA. Yep. And he gets brought in for his weekly lie detector test. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess they think that he's helping Ethan out. And uh, we find out. I think it's an interesting scene because 
There's so many things in this movie that are so good, especially like I don't think you necessarily pick up on them the first time you watch it. But that scene with Benji where he basically is going off on like how he's not Ethan's friend and all this stuff like you get the feeling and he passes the lie detector test. But you get the feeling like he's not fooling the lie detector test. He's actually telling the truth. Yeah. And I think he's a little pissed. Yeah. That Ethan's out there doing this. You know, doing the work, yeah, and he's stuck back at his back at his desk, mm-hmm. kind of relegated to what he does in Mission Impossible Three, where he's just kind of like the techie guy. Yep, and he grew so much in four; he got to go on missions. Yep, and so I think there's a little bit of him that's like annoyed. I would say I did like the so at the end of that scene, yeah, after Hunley like walks out and they're like done with the lie detector test or whatever, you can see like right before he gets up, it like <laughs> does beep up yeah. like a little bit. Yeah, so like it's kind of you get that feeling where you're like, he believes what he's yeah. saying, but then like that last little bit is like, he's kind of conflicted right. about it too. And I don't think anybody was like, Oh, like has Benji turned on Ethan? Like, right. but, but you were like, he is telling like how he feels right yeah. now is actually how he feels. He like, wants to be out like, there. Yeah. You have friends and you have situations where you get frustrated with them. Like not everybody's perfect. Right. And yeah. so I think it's totally appropriate for him to be frustrated and it's not shocking. No, like yeah. you're, you understand it. Right. And it doesn't make him, look like a bad person right there are two lines in this movie where there are puns on the names that always make me laugh alec baldwin says that'll be all done because his last <laughs> name is he's benji dunn so if you read it like it's written that'll be it's, all done that'll be all done which i think is hilarious um <laughs> and good. when he the other one is she says there will always be another lane yeah talking about solomon lane at the end yeah. i'm always like every time i'm like car lane yeah, like right. is it something Another else avenue? like avenue yeah 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 like it's just kind of funny like every time it gets me but i think i don't think that's a mistake like i think it's a purpose i think so yeah we find out so benji goes back to his desk he has two tickets to the vienna opera yep we have to talk about the opera sequence so mm-hmm. this is we the do. next big set piece of the movie yep and ethan has lured benji yep to the opera with the promise of two free tickets, <laughs> but re- like he's just randomly won. And so yeah. he's like, screw it. I'm going on vacation. So he goes to Vienna. He shows up. And as he's stepping off the subway, a, a courier runs into him with an envelope and there's glasses inside. Yep. And it's Ethan. Ethan's on the other end of it. So what he thought was just going to be a nice little getaway has now turned into a mission. Yep. And basically Ethan has tracked Solomon Lane to this opera that he's going to be there that night. He doesn't know what he's doing there, but he's trying to find him, mm-hmm. but he knows he can't do it on his, on his own. There's so many people there. He needs a second set of eyes basically. And he only trusts Benji. So walk us through a little bit of, I have a lot to, th- I have a lot to say about the opera sequence, but walk us through kind of the gist of what happens. Yeah. So basically, and to touch on Benji like a little bit, I always kind of get the feeling that he had like an inkling of a thought that, that he was going there for a reason. Yeah. Even, like, you know what I'm saying? Like in the yeah, back of his, stupid. in yeah. the back of his mind, he was like, something's up here, obviously, but right. I'm going to go anyways. And like, if nothing happened, nothing happens, but he was kind of prepared for anything. So anyways, yeah. So he arrives, he puts the glasses on, talks to Ethan a little bit, kind of understands like the situation where like, solid, you know, I expect this guy to be at the opera. 
Benji's like walking up to like the entrance and he sees the um, Austrian prime minister, right? Yeah. Get out of the car and he's like, well, the Austrian prime minister is here. Like, I'm sure that's not a coincidence. Yeah, we have a head of state here. Yeah. 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 And Ethan, you know, Ethan's like, well, yeah, I didn't know. No, whatever. Yeah. yeah. So then, you know, they go and Benji is coming into the opera and then he has to like find like uh, like a little secluded area where he can kind of like tap into like I guess like a I guess it's a computer. Yeah, it's weird, like but it's like into. a pro yeah, it's a it's a computer, it's a camera system, right? So he's yeah. like looking at but like it's sh it's shown up in the brochure, it's like screens in the brochure. Yeah. It was one of my favorite lines of the movie who was like, Join the IMF, see the world from a monitor. From a monitor. In a closet. <laughs> it's so great. It's like Benji's always relegated to yeah. the like not the cool stuff in the mission. <laughs> right. And so Ethan's kind of going into this blind. He doesn't really know what Solomon Lane might be planning, but he's been tracking him um, you know, across the globe pretty much. Um, and so he doesn't really know what to expect, who all is gonna be there, whatever, but he knows that Solomon Lane should be there. So he's got Benji kind of like scanning through the crowd looking for Solomon's face, while Ethan is kind of the man on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And he ends up like catching a glimpse of like once once he he catches a glimpse of Rebecca first of Vilsa, doesn't he? So he does while oh. he's watching, but he's going after the guy. So right. Benji sees something sketchy yep. backstage at the opera. And it's this guy that's like hiding from like the actors that are in the opera mm -hmm. and the singers and stuff. Like he kind of like hides behind a door as they open it. And he's like, I think I have something backstage. Yep. So Ethan follows him. And while he's following him, he sees Ilsa. Ethan does. But yes. Benji can't see her. Yeah. yeah. And he can't see Ethan either. But no. you're right. Th There's a guy that's got like the musical instrument that is yeah. a rifle. Yes. Um, that is, you know, yeah, he's disguising <laughs> himself as like a musician yeah. to, to get back there. And he's like up on the, the catwalk the catwalk there yeah. like above the thing as the opera is going on yes um and then ethan ends up like getting into a fight with that guy trying to stop him from yeah. shooting the prime minister which has become clear to them now that that is that's what they're after. what they're there yeah. for right and uh while he is fighting that guy he like ends up seeing Ilsa like once he i guess she's I guess, in a literal set piece yeah she's in a set like piece. an she's actual in, like, a piece of the tower set. pretty yeah. much right and she's setting up shop there so that she can get a clear shot at the yes. prime minister and then there is the ivan drago yes. other guy Who's the in henchman, the lighting booth. Who's in the lighting booth, like breaks into there. Um, and so there's like a lot of moving pieces and Benji is still like, you know, back there, like looking through. Right. Seeing all the cameras, whatever. And he ends up like noticing that there's the guy in the lighting booth. So yeah. Benji leaves to go try and stop the guy yeah. in the lighting booth. Then Ethan ends up getting rid of the musician sniper guy. Yeah. And then he realizes the situation that's at hand where yes. Elsa is lining up the shot on the prime minister. Yeah. And you've got the guy in the lighting booth that is also doing the same thing. Lining up yeah. the shot on the prime minister. And so Ethan's kind of like bouncing back and forth. He's like, which one them. do I take out? Yeah. yeah. And he then, only has one bullet. Right. Because he's got the one bullet right yeah. that he grabbed. And so he ends up deciding that like last second, right, you know, right before everything goes down. Yeah. He just turns and shoots the prime minister in the shoulder and knocks him out of his chair. And then Elsa fires her bullet. Right. So they both miss the shot. Yeah. Because he's not the sitting shot. there anymore. Yeah. yeah. And then the guy that's up in like the lighting booth thinks that that something, you know, something's afoot. Yeah. We didn't kill the guy because he sees him being like carried out. Yeah. Like a lie of the prime minister. So he turns to shoot at Ilsa while Ilsa is trying to shoot at Ethan. Yeah. And there's a lot of shooting going on. There is. Yeah. There is. And then Benji shows up in the lighting booth and get, ends up getting like in a fight with the guy that was in the lighting booth. And then Ilsa ends up shooting 
the guy. guy that was in lightning booth and basically saving Benji essentially. Yeah. And then Benji like hits the deck after she yeah. like fires that shot. Um, and then Ethan and Elsa kind of come together yeah. after that, where he's like, I know a way out of here. And yeah. they kind of like, she follows him and then they end up, um, going up top onto the roof of mm-hmm. like the opera house and like finding a way down, yeah. uh, which is where we get the second foot uh, shoe like reference shoe comment where he shoes please yeah she takes yeah he takes her shoes off he's like what and she's like shoes and <laughs> she like wants him to take her shoes off but it's such a it's such a great it's, it's iconic for me because the way that he the Macquarie like weaves the opera music with like the synchronization of the plot that is like unfolding to like shoot the prime minister it's like you can feel like these moving pieces and it feels chaotic but with like the opera music in the background it all feels like it's kind of flowing the way it's supposed to Mm -hmm. so it's almost like this like rhythmic dance of like moving parts that it becomes and it's just such a good scene yes it's like to me I was trying to explain it to Melissa who did Ghost Protocols. Like, you have to watch Rogue Nation. She teaches film Mm -hmm. to a bunch of high schoolers. And I'm like, you have to have them watch this scene. Because this is quite possibly one of the best edited action sequences I've ever seen. Because it will be so easy to be super confused about where everybody is. And what is taking place. Yes. So they're in this huge opera house. There's like four storylines going on. So there's Simon Pegg, Benji, trying to find Solomon Lane in the crowd. There's the stuff happening in the lighting booth. Before even the the bad guy shows up, they've showed them, you know, because the, the opera is happening. Yeah. So there's a show going on. So the whole background score of the scene is the opera. Right. Um, You have Ilsa figuring out what she's going to do. And then Ethan and the musician tall guy, which I wrote, I love that Ethan or that Tom Cruise just like basically made fun of his height. Yeah. Cause they st- both stand up and he like towers over him and yeah. he, and Tom Cruise looks, looks scared. Ethan <laughs> looks scared. And I'm like, I kind of love that he plays it up a little bit, right? but it's fascinating to me. The camera placement and the way it's edited, you're never confused where people are. Right. Or what is going on. Right. And it would have been so easy to make that confusing. Mm -hmm. And it, for me, I just think it's such a beautiful piece. Oh, it's so good. The movement of exactly like you said, the movement of it, everything's like very methodical and thought out. There's not, it's not frantic. Right. That's what I was about to say. It's very calm. When I feel you see like a lot of people when they're, they're making action movies or action sequences and stuff like that, they, they rely on like chaotic, frantic camera movement and camera yeah. movements and, and like a lot of fight choreography. Yeah. And, you know, they make it like very heavy handed, but like the way that this like part unfolds is so like it, it does a good job of like it builds tension. Yeah. But it's not like a super, super tense situation. But it it's just the way that they like unfold this like the whole like little storyline within the entire yes. story that just makes it seem it's it it just it mirrors the opera to yeah. me where it just it just flows so yeah. well and you're right like it could have been very easily where like they're throwing like maybe like a lot of fight sequences yeah and like a lot of like rushing around and whatever yeah. but it's very like methodical everybody's walking everywhere there's no running yep there's no like it's very calm yeah. and smooth. 
And then it gets chaotic once the shots are fired. Yep. Which is perfect, though, because then the opera's done. Right. Right? So they stop the opera, and then it's chaos. <laughs> yep. And that's how it should be. Exactly. And I think for me, it's just so... Like everybody just, it's like moving pieces of chess on like a chess board. Yeah. And everybody's just like in their little place and everybody's just calm, cool and collected. They all have their mission. This is what they're doing. Um, and Ethan's just trying to figure out basically which chess piece to follow. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's three people and he's like, oh, I don't know. I'm picking this guy. Yeah. And he fights him on the catwalk and it's still a fight scene. It is. Like they're punching each other. Yeah. They're like, but it's so still like that's the only way i can describe right. it like it's it's right. such an interesting way to shoot action um there are some i love her entrance scene so this is the infamous yellow dress yeah so while ethan's tracking down the super tall musician assassin um ilsa enters up this grand staircase in in the opera house and she's got this like gorgeous yellow flowing satin dress on Mm -hmm. right and she's just like rocking it and i literally was like she got so ripped for this movie oh my god it's like workout goals for me she is crazy ripped she's got so ripped for this movie she worked out for like six months to get ready for this movie and it shows she looks like a badass it is literally like I've said this multiple times. It's like he crawled into my brain. I'm like the theater experience plus an action sequence. Yeah. It is made for me. It's perfect. Yeah. It is made for me. I love the cleverness of the hidden weapons. So all the weapons in the scene are hidden with the exception of the guy in the lighting booth. But he's basically masquerading as a police officer. Well, no, the guy in the lighting booth, his like baton turns into his gun. Yes. Right, so he like takes it apart and re like puts it back together oh into like. Oh my gosh, they're all hidden. Yeah, they are all hidden guns. I've yeah. never caught that. Yep. Okay, so Elsa's gun is hidden in the uh, railing of the uh, catwalk in the uh, theater. Yep. The other, the super tall musician assassin, his is in the flute that yep. he's carrying, which yep. is so cool. It is really cool. And then the police officer is the baton. I've yep. never noticed the baton, that. The baton, he turns around uh, with the gun. I love the cleverness of that. I think it speaks to the intelligence of the scene. It's mm-hmm. like a very smart action sequence. Yep, it is. Um, the, the lighting of this is so cool. So Rebecca Ferguson, Ilsa, literally climbs up into a set piece. It's a moving tower. It's part of the set. Um, it's a it's an opera that's um, clearly set in Asia. And she uses that building specifically because that set piece actually gets moved into place during the scene where they're going to shoot the prime minister. Yeah. So she climbs up in there and she lines up the shot and there's her face like through the like scaffolding or the um, what is the word I'm looking for? It's uh, it's, like the it's like the lattice. Yeah, it's the lattice of like the cutout part of like the top. Yeah. So it's her face and there's like the gun lined up and it is like. It's always on the... There's a Twitter account called One Perfect Shot. One Perfect Shot. It's always on there. They always use that. And I'm always like, yes, it's so good. It is awesome. There's two of that. There's two shots in that sequence Mm -hmm. um, where she props the gun up on her leg and it's like a silhouette of her with the sniper rifle up and yep. then the one with her face through the thing. And it's just beautiful the way yeah. they lit it. It's what, yeah. The way they use like lighting and shadow and also just like framing of the shot. Yes. Where like it's, it, it is, it, they use like a lot of geometrical like yes. looks to it and everything. It's, it's really cool. Um, I think too, they, the other thing too, that I think is really cool. So obviously like, like you said, chaos ensues. Ethan shoots the prime minister to get him to hurt him without killing him. Mm-hmm. And then uh, 
you know, like you said, Ilsa shoots the second guy in the lighting booth and then Benji hits the floor. But then he goes up and he pushes all the lights up and blinds Ilsa and and it blinds her. But it also spotlights her yeah. of like that's where the shooter is. Yeah. And she You're like right. instinctively shoots the light out and then she jumps out of the building cl- like onto the curtains of the yep. I'm like, oh, my gosh, are you a cat? <laughs> so cool. Um, she drops and then she that's when Ethan she like is trying to escape her and Ethan escape out together. And this is the only callback. So all the other Mission Impossible movies have a rope stunt. Where yeah. somebody's laying flat, that's a callback to the first Mission Impossible. Yeah, yeah. Um, the only kind of callback to that is them escaping from the building. Yep. So they attach a rope to the side of the building and then descend down to the to the ground mm-hmm. to escape with the infamous shoe scene yep. um, and all that stuff. And then Benji, they watch the Prime Minister's vehicle explode. Yeah. So there was a safety they, measure they for if they, yeah, yeah. If they didn't shoot him. Like basically Solomon Lane sent you find out that Ilsa musician assassin and police officer assassin are all working for Solomon Lane yep. and he doesn't trust Ilsa. And that's why he sent the other two redundancies, which she figures out when they're in the car together. Yeah. But when she first gets in the car, like Benji picks him up. And he's like, get in. And Ethan jumps in with her. And he's like, what the? She tried to shoot me. <laughs> like, whatever. He doesn't trust her at all. Yeah, naturally. Um, and we find out so much information in that chase scene in the car. Yeah. Where basically they're after the same thing. He figures out that she's British intelligence, mm-hmm. that she's probably undercover. Um, right. And she gives him, well, he finds her lipstick, which is also a USB drive yep. um, that has information on it. And she jumps out of the car to make it look like an escape. And they drive off to what I am calling exposition time. Exposition time on the tech boat. <laughs> on the tech boat. So Ethan takes Benji to this boat to give him his credentials to fly back to DC so that he is not suspicious mm-hmm. to the CIA. And Benji basically puts up a fight and then he explains the syndicate and what is happening. Right. This is the scene where we find out what the heck is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically the syndicate is an organization that's using rogue agents that were presumed dead from all sorts of from all over the world. Any type of like covert ops, yeah. like undercover. Um, yeah. And he figured it out because well, he knew the bone doctor was supposedly dead. Yannick yep. Venter. Mm hmm. And then the guy that he kills, the musician assassin, he recognized him too. So now he's building this list of people who could potentially be part of the syndicate. Right. Then we, we switch to Ilsa confronting Solomon Lane. So they pick her up off the street. And this is like one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie because she's been captured by the syndicate baddies that are his like right hand men yep. and they shove her into this room and she just has enough like the guy like pushes her and she just whips around and she literally climbs up his body sits on his shoulders twists her body and takes him down to the ground and then disarms him yeah it like doesn't hurt nothing. him at all yeah but just literally just like does it and then throws his gun on the table in front of Solomon Lane and you're just like she is such a badass yeah. Like, the way, like her like acrobatics, yes. the way that she fights, like 
why she like uses like the size of the people that she's fighting because she's yeah. fighting mostly men yeah exclusively who men. are bigger than her yeah so like she uses like their size to like leverage herself and like yes. get up in the air and stuff like that and it, it's just like it's like entrancing to watch because yeah. you're like oh she's just like kind of like flipping it's, around and it's everything it's very black widow style it is it's very, very like a russian style. type yes. of fighting yep. um and so i was like well that must be intentional like mm-hmm. i think that that's interesting yep. and she says are you questioning my loyalty or my ability which i think is such a great line that's a great line and he says i can't decide like he can't decide if she it's Solomon Lane is like the best his voice is creepy as heck I yeah I have that written down here just I said Sean Harris is like the perfect rat-faced villain yeah because you're just like you're so squirmy and little and like you're not actually scary until you start talking right and he's got like this scratchy kind it's like a scratchy kind of squeaky high-pitched kind of voice voice and it's just so it's unsettling Yes, and I actually said, like, their scenes together, like the Solomon Lane and Ilsa Faust scenes are some of the best of the movie. Yeah. Because it's them kind of going toe-to-toe, which I love. Yeah. And he basically, she basically says, I've planted the breadcrumbs. Like, he'll find me. Yeah, he'll find me. Yeah. He's going to find out wherever I I am. I have seen to that. But the next scene is Casablanca, Mm -hmm. Morocco, where she is in a house that they're trying to find her in. And they basically figure out this is the classic mission impossible style mission of the movie yes it is yeah right so this set piece is the liquid calderay as many times calderay. as i can say that in calderay. this episode it's doesn't it just seem like it I does. Just, it's like my new favorite word it feels, like it, it feels like it should be like a french chocolate or something yes calderay um and so basically they figure out that she that solomon has sent her to recover a list mm-hmm What's on the list? It's supposed to be like a list of... Oh, it's like his clients, his, basically. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, it's his... Um, what do they call it? It's a dossier, but it's like... I don't know. They say something specific, but I can't remember the name of it. And But it's basically like something that could get him in a lot of trouble, basically. Right. And so he sent her to kind of recover that, which I think is weird for somebody... I guess he knew that there's a failsafe on it. But I'm like, why would you send somebody you don't exactly trust? Right. To find the thing that's going to like get you in a lot of trouble. Yeah, it does seem like a gamble on his part. Yeah, but basically it is, in the words of the franchise, an impossible mission um, mm-hmm. where you have to get into this computer room to get the list. But in order to do that, you have to bypass the system to get your man into that room. Mm-hmm. But the only way you can do that is by going into this liquid cooling called array mm-hmm. and swapping out the profiles but you can't have metal, so you can't have an oxygen tank. That's right. Gotta and hold I love, your breath. I love when um, Ilsa's like setting up the the mission, and <laughs> Benji's like, "Well, that doesn't sound that hard. It's not so bad." He's like, it's "Like, was it like two minutes? You could do that. You could do that." And he's like, "Well, what about switching the profiles?" He's like, three minutes, three minutes tops. Stop. You got that. This isn't impossible." Like, and I love the look on Ethan's face. Like, he looks at Ilsa, and he's kind of like, "Well." I guess we're doing this. Yeah, I wrote down. I said, I said Benji's belief in Ethan is is so good in that scene. Oh yeah, where, he just like I think it's such a cool thing where he looks at he's like he's Superman. You yeah, know? he's like oh yeah, he's fine with that. He can do that, no problem. Don't worry. Yes, it's so good. <laughs> I love this movie. So in Ghost Protocol is his is Benji's first movie out on the mission field. Yeah, and he doesn't get to wear a mask. And he talks about it in the movie. He does. And then in Rogue Nation, he gets to wear a mask, but only hypothetically. 
Right. Right. So they play out the scenario of what could happen, and it's Benji wearing a mask, but it doesn't really matter if Benji wears the mask. And, exactly. Um, I love the scene where they they show him they show them putting the mask on him mm-hmm. they're all it's all a hypothetical like you know it's like a vision of what the, yeah. the mission would look like that's that shot of him putting the mask on in the mirror yeah so it shows ilsa leaning up against the mirror and then ethan putting on the mask to benji is a practical shot so there is no mirror really there are six people in that shot Oh my gosh. Yes. It is fascinating. So they have like the actual actor of the face that he's putting on as the reflection. Yes. But it's just. But it's Benji sitting in the seat and then a Tom Cruise stand in for the not mirror shot. Right. In the mirror, it's Tom Cruise. In Mm -hmm. the not mirror shot, it is Rebecca Ferguson as Ilsa. And there's a stand in that's on the other side of the mirror that looks like her backside. Oh my gosh. How cool is that? That's really awesome. I, I did not know that. I'll have to find you the behind the scenes feature on that. It's super well, cool. Well, I, I did like it like peaked me for a second when they showed him putting the mask on because like by the time he gets it to like go down. Yeah. I was like, well, that's just that actor. Yeah. And I was like, they must have put like some skin flap like yeah. down here. But like you can tell I was like, I wonder how they pulled that off where they, they seamlessly yeah. made it into the actor. And now. Now you know. It makes sense. It's all practical. Yep. So I that's like one of my those are the kind of like those are little things that nobody ever notices and I'm like that's like one of the coolest things it's in the so whole cool. movie. That's like, great. Yeah. At the same time that they're trying to pull off this mission, Brant approaches Luther to try and find Ethan because Alec Baldwin's going to kill him. Yep. Hunley's like I'm after I'm after him like I'm going to get him. Yep. And he basically says like Luther's like they can't catch him. He's like catch him. They're going to kill him. Yeah. Like it's not more serious. Yeah. So Luther agrees to help him find um, Ethan and Benji. And because when Benji doesn't come back, the CIA is like, what the heck? Yeah. Something's 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 afoot. A A rabbit's foot. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, they're going to find him. And uh, Luther starts by looking for Ilsa and Solomon Lane because he figures or Ilsa. He basically starts looking for Ilsa because he shows the two drawings and he's like, he trusts her. Yeah. Because she's kind of smiling in the sketch and yeah. Solomon Lane's not. So he starts scanning and Brant's like, how long is this going to take you to find? And he said, for mere mortals. Uh, he's like, is this even possible? He's like, for mere mortals? No, for me, I could have done this from home. I could have done this from home. You <laughs> like, didn't even need to bring me in, really. Yeah, Luther's the best. And he's like, how long is it? And he's like, founder, like right in the middle of the. So then it cuts back. The underwater sequence is nuts. It is. They have it's to break into this building. So stressful. He has to jump into the cauldron mm-hmm. very precisely, which we figured out this time. I'm like, if he didn't jump right in the center, that thing he would have just smacked the side so i said that if it would have been me i would have jumped in i would have missed the middle and just like immediately broken my legs on the side of the <laughs> mission thing. over yeah mission over like. i would have been sucked down underneath it would have just <laughs> bye bye we're not getting that right so elsa and ethan are breaking into the calderay while um benji is getting the profile swapped out right and so but ethan has to hold his breath for three minutes basically yeah so he has a little oxygen thingy on his arm and uh ilsa's watching it right so he's three minutes to go in there stuff goes wrong because is mission impossible yep so 
she shuts down the water flow in there so that he can swim freely without fighting the current. Yep. And I don't know why in every Mission Impossible movie they're like, nobody will notice that we're shutting it down. Like, there's always somebody <laughs> watching. Thing yeah. That, like, this entire plant is devoted to running. Right. It's off now and yeah. everybody's just going to keep on like, Like, well, oh, that's weird. I guess it's whatever. resetting itself. <laughs> totally like, I'm normal. like, yeah, there's always somebody who, like, turns it back on. Yeah. So, of course, it gets turned back on. Um, Ethan's fighting the current. He basically ends up he runs out of oxygen. Mm-hmm. He f- switches the profile just in time so Benji can get through, but then he can't get out. Yep. So Ilsa jumps in after him mm-hmm. um, and saves him. And then Benji comes out and he's like, see, I told you, not impossible. <laughs> like right after she like revives Revive him with like the, the shock. The what paddles. Those called? Yeah, the paddles. Yeah. So she has to revive him. He's delirious. Benji comes down. He's like, I underestimated you. Like you basically like risked your life to save Ethan, even though he'd completed the mission Yep. and all this stuff and hands her her change of clothes or whatever. And he's talking to Ethan, which I think is funny. Like, he's just like, Hey man, he's like Benji. Like he's just so out of it. Yeah. And she shocks the crap out of Benji, steals the USB drive and runs for it. Mm -hmm. And so now you're like, wait a second. There's a whole thing in this movie of like, is she good? Is she bad? Right. You don't know. Right. You don't really know until the end. Exactly. So you think just when you think she's like on Ethan's side, she does that. And then that leads into a huge motorcycle chase, which I think is funny because Ethan's in a car. Everybody else is in motorcycles. Yeah. And I think one of the funniest scenes in the movie um, where, I mean, he just got revived. And so he tries to jump over the car. Like he's just, like, I got yeah. this. And he just <laughs> eats it. Like does. just flat eats out, it. just like on the top of the car, just like laying there. Yes. Pretty much. And I have found this, like, the more I've watched Tom Cruise's like more recent movies, like I think he's really leaned into some of the physical comedy. Yep. Which I appreciate. Like it's okay to like be funny. Like you don't have to be like the super cool spy like all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think he kind of gets that. And Definitely. Uh, and I like I appreciated that in this movie. There was a lot of levity in this movie, which, uh, which I really liked. Yep. <laughs> and Benji's like, are you okay to drive? A minute ago, you were dead. <laughs> like he's like <laughs> freaking out. Like Benji's rightfully so. But I think that the, uh, I am having such a hard time reading my handwriting, by the way. Oh yeah. Mine, we, we wrote our notes uh, like in a very dark room. Yes. Yeah, so they have so, a theater room here that is like a legit theater room with like a projector and no lights. And so we were struck on the struggle bus. Yeah. Um, I wrote blindly. I something in the car something sequence. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it was great, when right? You put it, when you put it like that, when I really put, do. Yeah. <laughs> when you put it like that, who can argue? Oh, uh, was it talking about like going down the stairs or I something? Don't know. Or no. I, I love the bit with uh, with Luther and Brent when yes. they're like trying to turn the car around and they're just kind of bickering at each other. It's really yes. good. A giant. They rent obviously clearly rented a giant Land Rover from the airport or whatever they landed. Yep. And he's like, "You just had to have the four by four. And he's like, "Drive faster!" Like Luther's so mad at him. Yeah. That whole sequence is hilarious because Benji's terrified, so there's like a level of comedy in it, and yep. he's like. They're about to have to wreck the car. And Ethan looks at him. He's like, do you have your seatbelt on? And he's like, you're just now asking me that? Yeah. Like, it's pretty funny. Yep, it is. It's really funny. It's, um, great, it's a great chase scene. So they, they have to wreck the car. And they're like on their top. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good shots in this movie. So you see the motorcycle pull up. And the guy gets off the motorcycle. And he's just like walking towards the car. And you're like, well, crap, this is it. Like, yeah. what are they going to do? 
And then here comes Benji and Luther and the Land Rover and they just plow over the guy. But the shot never changes. Like you just see his feet disappear. Yeah, you're <laughs> like, you're looking at it from like the upside down car window where Tom Cruise is right. sitting. So like you have a very limited view of what's right. going on. And then all of a sudden, yeah, you just see the guy get hit. And then like it just kind of everybody just kind of relaxes after that. But the best part of that scene is so he hits the motorcycle, the, the driver and Tom Cruise. <laughs> He's awake for it. And then Brant leans down and he's like, hey guys. And Benji wakes up and he's like, ah, look out. Like he freaks out. <laughs> like after screaming, everything's yeah. done. Yeah. Like yeah. he's like, he's still in the mode he of passed like. passed out during the, during yes, the wreck. Yeah. It's so good. Um, the motorcycle sequence is done really, really well. The really chase. Well. Um, yep. Much better than Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> Yeah. They really figured it out. They did. There's um, no doubt. And basically, like, Ilsa causes him to crash. She's He's trying to catch up with Ilsa. I think mostly because now he knows she's a double agent and he wants to make sure she's safe. Yeah. He's not even, like, mad that she stole the files. Right. I, th- I, I agree with you. But I think he's wanting to protect her. They he She causes him to crash. She drives off. And they all have to meet up. Brant, uh, Luther... Benji and Ethan and Ethan's like please tell me you made a copy of the disc and Benji's like of course I made a copy of the disc so they don't even need to really worry about Ilsa anymore like she might have it but their hope is that she's taking it back to British intelligence yep and not to Solomon Lane yep and so they don't really care because they have their own disc well they find out that the disc is locked it's a red box so Mm -hmm. there's three keys that they have to get to open it yeah it's like a fingerprint a retinal scan and a voice match yep of the Prime Minister of England, which, <laughs> as you can imagine, would be pretty hard to get. Yeah, not easily you don't accessible. Have readily access, yeah, readily accessible uh, to the to the Prime Minister, and so the whole third act of the movie is basically them trying to unlock this red box, but also frame them for the creation of the syndicate. Yep, because basically they have to stop Solomon Lane, but in a way that the CIA and Alec Baldwin understand that they're doing the right thing. Right. Exactly. And they basically have to like leave breadcrumbs and like make it as obvious as possible and like set yes. things up to where the CIA is like stumbling into these realizations. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so Ilsa does exactly what they want her to do. She takes the disc to British intelligence. But what they don't realize is that British intelligence is double crossing them. Yep. Her, her, her. Yeah. So <laughs> they erase the disc while they're meeting with her. And that's Atlee. So Atley is the head of MI6. Yeah. And Hunley is the head of the CIA. Yeah. Why'd they do that? Chief Atley, Director Hunley. Yes. There you go. Boom. <laughs> nailed it. We just watched it. How can I not Super remember simple. that? Um, and so Ethan meets with Ilsa, but she's kind of like luring them in. Because yes. she has a whole conversation with so Atley, like she basically takes the disc to Atley and is like, "Okay, it's time to take me back in. I'm done being a double agent." Yeah, and he's like, "I don't know what you thought you were doing, but you haven't done your whole job yet." Right, and kind of throws her to the wolves because then she goes and meets with Solomon Lane, gives him the disc like Atley wants her to, but it's erased. It's empty. Yeah, so there's nothing on it. So Atley or uh, Solomon Lane is like pissed. Yeah, and he's like, "You so need he, to get it back." What does he say? Um, I he says, "Um, I'm intrigued to see how you're going to excuse what happens next." Yeah, because she always has this excuse for how Ethan got away, mm-hmm. and so that's why he kind of like he kind of sends her to the wolves, kind of knowing probably that they're tracking her. Right. And her thing is that she's supposed to send a message mm-hmm. from Solomon Lane to to Ethan. To Ethan, yeah. And 
the message is that they're kidnapping Benji. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's Surprise. the message. So at the train station, um, she they kidnap Benji. And so now it's this whole like they got to figure out how to get the red box unlocked by kidnapping the prime minister so that they can use the information that's on the disc because now they know the other one's erased Yeah, to leverage Solomon Lane to get Benji back and stop the whole thing. Yep. And so that's basically what they end up doing. It is. So they, but they loop in Alec Baldwin unbeknownst that it's like this whole, I love the scene. So they, they set up the whole, I can't even explain it. You just have to watch it because the whole setup of Atlee Yes. And the syndicate is so well done. It's, it is really, really well done where they, I mean, obviously, like, like you said, you have to watch it, but uh, Ethan is, is masked up as Adley yes. and they, they have Brant call Hundley saying like, basically making it seem like I'm going off book here from the guys that I'm with, like with Ethan and them, but like, they're going too far. Yeah. You need to come here. You need to come to London. Here's what's going to happen. And he shows up at like some charity event and he sees Atley there, talks to Atley a little bit. Yeah. And then the prime minister is is there as well. And then um, Hunley thinks he's like filled in on the situation from Brant where Ethan is going to try and kidnap the prime minister. Yeah. And so Hunley and Brant are like able to get the prime minister and, in a room, and, yeah. and Atley in a room into a room. And they're like trying to tell him like, we're here to protect you. And yeah. like, then they start like talking about, you know, British intelligence stuff with the syndicate <laughs> and, and all this stuff. Alec Bowman started talking about the threat that Ethan Hunt is and he says, no person he cannot become. And I was like, the yeah. irony. Yeah, I know. That is, I love that every time I watch yeah. that scene because he's talking about what Ethan is and how dangerous he is. And, yes. and he's like talking, like you said, no person he cannot become. And he's yeah. in the room disguised as Atlee. Yeah. Um, but anyways, they it gets revealed that the syndicate was Atlee's idea. The prime minister had shut it down um, and it, it was not supposed to be operational at right, all. It was always supposed to be in theory. Yeah. But it was Atlee, never supposed to be functional. Atlee decided to like roll forward with it. Solomon Lane basically went off book and like separated from what it was supposed to be and, and took it over for himself. And there's like a bunch of offshore funds, $2.4 billion worth of British pounds or whatever that, yeah, can help Solomon Lane like operate um, his with, terrorist with, organization, with yeah. terrorist organization with no oversight. There's yeah. no like it's untraceable funds, right? And so right. that's where they figure out that it's money that is on the disc and not yeah. names, right? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what they figure out. Then, then they're able to like unlock it um, with the they like end up darting the the <laughs> yeah. prime minister. And then it's, it's like a truth serum. Yeah, it's like a truth serum. And Adley like takes his mask off and it's Ethan. And then to which Alec Baldwin's character is like, what? Yeah, he can't he's believe like so it. Surprised. Yeah. <laughs> then like the real Atley ends up like showing up. They end up darting him and the two other guys that were guarding the door on the outside because now Atley is obviously in trouble because he right. is the one that is to blame for all of this happening in right. Solomon Lane becoming what he is. Um, so then. And they get him to admit <laughs> yeah, they get that him to, he started the syndicate and that he framed Elsa. And that he framed Elsa. Yes, yeah. right. Because they hit him with the truth serum as well once they right. dart him. And then Ethan is, they like take it back to, or Luther was able to unlock it. Yeah. They go back to where Luther is. And Which is some subway tunnel some somewhere. Some subway tunnel, yeah. And then he calls Solomon Lane like saying like, hey, like we got it. And he's like, you know, you're cutting it close. Tells him where to meet him. Um... And, or where they're going to meet and what's Some going to happen. Cafe outside on the river by the River Seine. No, <laughs> the river Seine. that's that's Paris. 
What's the Thames? The Thames. Yes, the Thames. Whatever. You, you know what I meant. So he's supposed to be bringing the disc. Yes. Um, the unlocked, now unlocked disc. Uh, but we see Ethan like drill a hole in the USB before he goes after yeah. he's like, he's reading through the files and yeah. you can see like, here's the money in this bank account, this bank account. So he goes to the uh, restaurant, cafe, whatever mm-hmm. on, on the Thames and he like slowly walking up and you can see they're surrounded by like Solomon Lane's like henchmen and he can see Ilsa sitting at the table and there's clearly Benji yep. with his back to Ethan and he like slowly walks up and like looks over at Benji and he's got like the little contact in and he's got an earpiece in yeah. and then he's got a bomb strapped, strapped to his, his chest, chest. Yeah. That is, that's counting down. And um, that's when, you know, obviously Solomon Lane thinks like you're going to have to give it up now. And like Elsa's going to kill both of you. If she He's basically talking to Solomon Lane through Simon Pegg. And I literally am like, or through Benji. Yeah. And such great acting from Simon Pegg. Oh, yeah. It's so good because he's like terrified for his life, but he still has to deliver the message. Yeah. And like a very so like good. stern and like yes. fierce way. And that you Solomon can tell like, when he switches between Benji and Solomon, like it's a different yeah. voice you yep. know what i mean it is it is and that is a, that is a really cool part yeah. where yeah it's basically like solomon is like inside of his head yeah. with the contact and everything um but anyways yeah so the whole deal is that ilsa is supposed to get the disc and then shoot and ethan then and benji and shoot ethan and benji and then if she doesn't shoot them then there's obviously the henchmen around that will kill all three of them. yeah so she's like this is how it's gonna be it's either gonna be you two that die or it's gonna be all three of us yeah whatever then but ethan's like Ha-ha! ethan's got an ace up his sleeve and yeah. he reveals that he's destroyed the disc and that <laughs> he, he says, i am the disc he is the disc <laughs> he's memorized all of like Which, the. do you think he really memorized it or do you think he memorized one as a bluff I honestly, there's no way to memorize all that yeah i like i mean obviously like you can suspend belief for yeah. for like a lot of, uh, of this stuff but i've that's one where i'm like there's no way he was able to memorize because there was like a ton of different entries like three yeah and maybe yeah maybe he had to just test a couple bluff like a couple times yeah, just a couple but he says but he even says that he's like maybe i'm bluffing and he's like but is that a risk you're willing to take yeah it's like the only way for you to yeah. find out if i am or not is yeah. to turn the is to stop it's the timer because he knows like that's the one thing he's after and if he can't if he's the only person who has the information he's guaranteeing his safety yeah he and can't he can literally make anything like he can leverage anything because yeah it's his life against right yeah it's interesting so at the last second, I even have written down here. I said he cut it so close oh on, the, on the bomb. One nine. Yeah, because Solomon Lane is like clearly very perturbed, right. and he's like standing up, like in whatever like his lair. flat that he's in, yeah. and he's like sitting there thinking and just very angry at what Ethan's done and how he's kind of been cornered. And yeah. like the time is like ticking down, ticking down, ticking down, and he like just like turns and like jumps to the computer real quick and yeah. like slams a button with yeah. like point one nine seconds left or something yeah. like that. And I was like, dude, you could. I mean, yeah, good lord, like you cut it. <laughs> really close yeah that what was if a you bit missed much. the button yeah yeah it is a little much and basically like ethan like he has to give in to ethan's demands because mm-hmm. if he doesn't like then his ethan, organization is Ilsa, like he says uh, he basically says ilsa like shoot me if they come any closer shoot me yeah like he's the bargaining chip right? right and she like scoots over with the gun and like puts it and he's like let benji go so he gives him the code and then gives him the phone to find Luther and Brandt, yep. which I which comes into play later because I have questions. So then he and Ilsa again do the nod thing where they just know what the other one's talking about, yeah. and they just start firing on all the. Yeah. And basically, she's using him as a human yeah, shield. Ethan is a human shield because they have they can't like, shoot the henchmen him. have direct orders not to shoot. Yeah, and Ethan. he says he says shoot the girl. Yeah, 
And so she's using him as a shield and they take off running, which is the scene where she keeps up with Tom. Mm -hmm. They just run all over London. They do. And I love when they slide across the car hood. Like he slides across the top. She slides across the bottom. It's very like they're like both the same amount of capable. Right. Right. And so they end up fighting a bunch of people and then they break off and Solomon Lane goes after Ethan and the bone doctor goes after Ilsa. Mm -hmm. And that's where we have the badass scene where it's actually like. It's almost hard to watch. It is. But like by the end of it, she climbs up on top of him and then shoves the knife into his chest. And then as he falls over, that's her like way to get off of him. Yeah. And I'm like, whoo. Yeah, that is like a crazy like way to like end that yeah. fight where she just You're climbs like, up, boom, and then she just kind of like rides the way down. Is there something about the sound of it? Yeah. You're just like, ugh. ugh. Um, I actually like the way that scene is shot. They use the shadows a lot. Mm-hmm. The cinematography of that scene is very, very the cool. The framing of it, too, with, like, the pillars yes. and, like, it being, like, in a kind of a confined yeah. space is pretty cool. And it's her, like, she's hiding from him at first. So, like, the way the camera, like, reveals him walking behind the columns and where she's hiding and stuff is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and then it's Solomon Lane and Ethan are in a face-off. And he kept, when he was meeting with Luther and Brant before he goes to the cafe... Brand's like, what if you can't make it back here? And he's like, I will make it back. Yeah. And you're like, what? Like, you don't really know what they're talking about? Yep. So he's like hobbling, like, as Ethan ends up doing in every movie. Yeah. To get back to this freaking subway tunnel thing that they're in. And so he slides across the floor into this hole. This random square in yeah, the middle of the floor. In the floor, into the subway tunnel. And Solomon Lane walks up and jumps down into the hole. And what he doesn't know is that he's jumped into a glass box. Yep. And they've trapped him. Yeah. And it's such a good callback to the record store at the beginning where they trapped him in a glass box. Yep. And and, and, and Ethan, filled it with smoke. And Ethan even makes like a few like references, references to putting yeah. Lane in a box. Yeah. Throughout now, the movie. Yeah. Throughout yeah. the movie. And it's just and like it's just funny because he says it directly to Lane a couple yes. of times. And he said, it's such a badass scene, too, because all four of them, so it's <sighs> Ethan, Luther, Brant, and Benji, each of them are on a side of the box. Mm-hmm. He's like, welcome to the IMF. Like, it's like this, like, the music's so great. Yeah. My big beef is Ilsa just shows up. Where? How did she know where they were? That is a good question. Because Benji didn't know where they were. And she was... Like, unless she somehow was, like, able Saw to them. follow, like, yeah. where, like, Ethan went, even because, even, like, she was fighting the, the bone, bone doctor. doctor. It pre- like, presumably in the same vicinity. Yeah, they were they were right in the same yeah. area, because, like, the bone doctor goes, like, up the stairs after Ethan yeah. had crashed out the window. Yeah. So, it was, so like, they're, like, they're right close. in the same so area. So, maybe she'd seen Solomon, or, I don't know, maybe she followed yeah. them. But you're right. But she it does is kind of funny, because she just, like, appears, and yeah. I'm like, how did she know where they were? <laughs> Where'd like, you Benji come had to have a phone yeah. to get there. Right. Exactly. Um... But it's such a cool, like, it's such a good way to end the movie. It's so classy, too, because it's just like, they don't kill him. Yeah. They just gas him. And they tip the glass box over, shove him into an ambulance, and they take off right off into the night. Mm-hmm. And Ilsa says goodbye to Ethan, and she says, you better hurry now, which yep. is her the callback to the first scene. She yep. hugs him, and then she drives off. And it ends with um, Alec Baldwin as the head of the CIA, Director Huntley. Yep. Basically arguing that the IMF should be reinstated. Yeah. Because his whole argument before 
this like six months, you know, however many yeah. months ago it was, was because they were worried that somebody in the syndicate had like infiltrated the highest levels right, of so government. It was all fake. Yeah. So it was all fake. It was necessary for us to like get rid of the IMF yeah. uh, for us to, to accomplish this mission. The, yeah. yeah. Um, so Hunley's like all on board with the IMF now that he's been like shown kind of what they can do. Yeah. Right. And it's funny because he and Jeremy Renner Brant are leaving the meeting. And he says, um, welcome to the IMF secretary. Secretary, yeah. And uh, so, and you, spoiler alert, find out in Fallout, but now he's the head of the IMF. Right. So he kind of jumps, I think he believes in what they're doing mm-hmm. um, so much, but so, so good. Like, highly recommend it. Yes, if you um, haven't seen it. I have tons of trivia. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Let's see how much we've covered. I feel we like may we, have covered a lot in the we course had to have of this. Gotten to a decent amount um, of it. He was watching me. He, Cameron did like five things today while I was writing down trivia. That's how much trivia there is. It's true. So the stunt coordinator told Simon Pegg that Tom Cruise is going to do all of the driving because he didn't have a driver better than Tom Cruise, <laughs> which I think is that's crazy. Which sounds about right. That is that's, that's there, insane. Was, there wasn't a stunt man that was better than Tom Cruise yeah. at driving the car. This was fun. The original release date was set for December twenty fifth, twenty fifteen. This is supposed to be a Christmas movie. Really? However, Paramount Pictures pulled forward the release date to July thirty first to avoid competition with Spectre and Force Awakens. Which, thank goodness, wow, it would have gotten hammered oh, at the yeah, box office crushed. especially behind Force Awakens came and and star, star wars? wars yeah no way so that was a good call moving into july i always was. just think of them as more of summer movies anyways they do feel like it's more they, of a summer blockbuster yeah, exactly ethan receives his new mission on a vinyl long playing record this is one of the first ways um of receiving new missions from the mission impossible tv show oh, back in the 60s nice so that was not only a great move on the timeless part for chris mccrory it was also a callback to the tv show there you go this is the first Mission Impossible film in which every member of Ethan Hunt's IMF team is a veteran of at least one previous installment of the franchise. Wow. So technically, Ilsa's not part of the team. Oh, yeah, she's not part of the um, team. Yeah. So Brant, Luther, and Benji are all from previous installments. Luther yep. from all four previous. Yeah. Uh, Benji from two of the ones and Brant from and one. And Brant from the one before, yep. The Syndicate were the regular antagonists in the original TV series. Oh, wow. So I think McQuarrie pulled a lot from the original it series. It seems like he did, yeah. yeah. Let's see here. Oh, <laughs> speaking of the shoes scene. So okay. this became famous. Okay. So a brief scene in which Ilsa pauses in the middle of an action sequence to remove her high-heeled shoes was singled out in reviews for its realism, especially in light of the just-released Jurassic World, which was criticized as Bryce Dallas Howard spends much of her action scenes in the movie literally running in heels from dinosaurs. And I don't, do you remember that? Yes. Everybody made such a big deal of like, take off the shoes. I do remember that because like, I remember it bothering me when I was watching it. And yeah. there was other people that were talking Bryce, about it. Guys, take off the heels. You're running <laughs> from dinosaurs. And then like this came out like a month later. Yeah. And um, there was actually the rest of the trivia thing was they considered using it in promos. Oh, really? Because it was such a hot button topic. Yeah. And then Christopher McQuarrie and Tom Cruise were like, we don't really want to tiss the knife. Like, it's not supposed to be about that. Right. But I remember it being such a big thing with Jurassic World. And then to have Ilsa in the movie be like, shoot, like take off her shoes. It's almost like they filmed it on purpose, but obviously it was filmed before all that. Paula Patton and Maggie Q were set to reprise their roles from previous movies, but both actresses dropped out of the project due to scheduling conflicts. Really? So I think that would have been interesting. That's Um, crazy. You'll love this fact. Benedict Cumberbatch was the first actor considered to play the villain. Wow. Could you imagine? Really? 
that is nuts to me. That is nuts. It's so, I, it would have sure. still been super good. Oh, yeah, for sure. But it's just so... I can't picture him being much like Sean Harris. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like it'd be Sean a very Harris different... Sean is a little older, so I think that... Yeah. Like, leans a little differently, I think. I think so, too. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, the That's film crazy. was completed at 2 a.m. on July 18th, less than two weeks before its release date. We think about that. It was originally supposed to come out on December 25th. Yeah, oh, my And then gosh. Paramount was like, just kidding, July 31st. And they were like, crap. <laughs> I can't they had imagine. to, like, rush it. That's crazy. Um, so we were talking about how we couldn't see anybody but Re- Rebecca Ferguson in the role. Mm-hmm. So this is interesting. Jessica Chastain was the first choice wow. to play the female lead, but declined because she did not like the prospect of spending up to six months training for the role, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. That is very funny. Respect. This is the second time after Oblivion that she turned down a role in a Tom Cruise movie. Wow. <laughs> Rebecca Ferguson was unanimously the second choice as the studio and Cruise and McCory liked her work in The White Queen. Now, I have not seen this, but it was a miniseries. Oh, really? And she won a Golden Globe for it. No way. Yes. And that was like, she was nobody when that came out. That's what I was about to say. That's why I was actually, I was going to bring that up when we were talking about this. I, you know, I was like, I don't think I ever saw Rebecca Ferguson in anything before this. She's been, she was in like very little wow. before this. And Tom Cruise, he's been quoted like he loved the White Queen. Like, really? and specifically wanted her. That's awesome. This is interesting. There's so many good trivia facts about this movie. The subtitle of the film, Rogue Nation, caused a small conflict between Paramount and Disney, which announced its Star Wars spinoff, Rogue One, oh, a Star Wars story at the same time. Really? Both production companies came to an agreement in exchange for use of the title. Disney wouldn't promote or release any promotional materials of its own film until Paramount's film was released. So Disney what? was like, it's fine, <laughs> but we won't promote Rogue One until Rogue Nation is released. That's pretty cool. Which I think is interesting. Yeah, it is. It's very interesting. Tom Cruise is only five years younger in this movie than John Voight was in the first Mission Impossible. And that is insane to me because John Voight looks so old in that movie. John Voight looks so old. I know. He just looks so old in general, I feel like. Especially compared to Tom Cruise being like, it's not even close. I can't even believe Tom Cruise is the age that he is. Oh, yeah. No. Um, In an interview, Tom Cruise stated that the so this is kind of a a throwback to another classic film, kind of what I was talking about, Mm -hmm. their homage to classic cinema. Yeah. Um, Tom Cruise stated that the gray suit worn during the opening sequence um, when he's on the plane is a direct homage to the plane sequence in North by Northwest. Okay. (laughs) The main operatic theme in the film is called Nissan Dorma. Mm, my favorite right yeah from the opera turando which was um, what was listed yes, there by giacomo puccini giacomo that's the only word in that sentence that i felt like i said right i know it's giacomo puccini <laughs> that's you nailed that pronunciation it's good which is the same opera featured in the assassination scene it also unofficially becomes ilsa's theme in the film so the Ooh. main song, and it you hear it when she's descending the stairs okay. in the opera house. Yeah. Um, and it appears several times in scenes. And I really noticed it this time. Um, you hear notes of it when she first enters the room where he's um chained up. Oh, really? The first time they meet. Wow. And I'm like, that's from the opera. That's great. And so they incorporated it into the score. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. That's really awesome. I loved that. I was yeah. like, yeah, you can. She has her own like theme in the mm-hmm. movie. Um, this is one of my favorite facts. And you will appreciate this. I know you will appreciate this. 
Tom Cruise was attached to star as Napoleon Solo in Man from Uncle. Oh my gosh. But dropped out to do this film. Wow. Cruise's replacement, Henry Cavill, would later work with Cruise in Fallout. That's amazing. How crazy is that? I love that. That is, that is crazy. And I, I am no so idea. glad that he dropped out because now we have two of my favorite movies. <laughs> right. Which came out very close to each other in yeah. 2015. Yeah. Man from Uncle and Rogue Nation. And they're both better because of who played them in those movies. You're absolutely right. Um, I'm so glad that he was not in Man from Uncle. I really think Henry he, Cavill was the right Cavill, choice for that. Because like the way that especially like the way that Cavill played it, it was like much a much more like buttoned up, like kind of yeah. refined. Well, and he had like that real dry humor yeah the dry humor, you know what like, I mean yeah and he just played it I feel like Tom would have it just would have been very different yeah. and I don't know if it would have been as good I, I 100% played that agree with that really well. oh my gosh that was the perfect role for Henry Cavill mm-hmm. the terminal and the underwater safe that Ethan needs to access is 108 this number has cropped up in most bad robot productions apparently I've never watched Lost but apparently that number shows up in Lost. Okay. 108. So that was it's a big a number. Easter egg yes. From JJ. Um, this is the fourth Tom Cruise McQuarrie collaboration. Of course, before all the other ones that they've done. Mm-hmm. Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow. So I was Jack like, Reacher. And give me a second. What is the third one? I can't remember. I didn't write it down. I was I was thinking it was the first and second Jack Reacher. And I was like, wait a no, McQuarrie. Is it Valkyrie? Did he do Valkyrie? McQuarrie? Did he do Valkyrie? I don't know. I think know. he was involved, but I don't think he directed it. Valkyrie, what a movie. That's where... That's I, where still, I still haven't seen it. Have you seen Tom Cruise's fake butt in it? <laughs> it's um, my favorite thing ever. I know it is. I see you um, retweet that thing all the time from Lights, Camera, Barstool. Um, it is Valkyrie. Is it Valkyrie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But oh. he didn't direct it. He wrote the, he just, the script for okay. it. Okay, I didn't know he was involved so in that. Was that's their, awesome. Yeah, their collaboration. Okay. Um, cool. All good guys in the movie drive BMW cars. Whoa. Except Brant and Stickle and their, uh, which is Luther, Luther Stickle. Yeah. Um, and the Land Rover, which of course we've talked about. Mm-hmm. The idea of synchronizing a gunshot with a particular moment in a musical score mm-hmm. during a live performance is taken from a Hitchcock movie, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Really? So they show the music in the opera sequence for yeah. Turandot, like the the crescendo of the song is like when the gunshots, so they have it circled. Like yep. it shows Ilsa like looking at it and it's like circled. This is the note you shoot the prime minister on. Yeah. Um, I've not seen the man who knew too much. Um, but I, I like, but again, fans of classic cinema yep. that they pulled from a Hitchcock movie, something yep. that, and I'm like, I love that. That's, that's um, really awesome. This is the first film in the franchise where Ethan and the primary antagonist share no physical contact whatsoever. And it's true. They don't even see each other in person until the very final sequence. Until the end. Wow. And I never thought about that until I wrote down that You're trivia right, they fact never, like, today. never physically engage or anything. No. Wow. Um, That's pretty crazy. In one scene, so the scene where they're approaching, where they're going to kidnap the prime minister, mm-hmm. there's clearly an Aston Martin in the parking lot. So there's all these dark cars and there's a silver Aston Martin. Yeah. Um, and so they're like, it's probably a fun reference to James Bond, yep. which is pretty yep, cool. Yep, Bond reference. Yep. Um, this is the second time since 2006 that a James Bond movie was released in the same year. Wow. So 2006 was Casino Royale. Yeah. And then 2015 was Spectre. Spectre, yeah. And that and now that Bond has moved, 
it might line up with with seven. With seven. Yeah, you're right. Interesting. No time to die. No time to die. <laughs> okay, so this is we talked a lot about Ingrid Bergman, Ilsa, Casablanca, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but f- there's a German legend, Faust, which is where McCory pulled the last name for the character. Yeah. Um, where the title character makes an ill-fated deal with the devil. Okay. And it's like popular in literature. It's been used a lot. And so it's kind of like the idea of like you sold your soul to the devil. Mm-hmm. So it was funny because Rebecca Ferguson, she's been quoted saying like, I didn't get the Ilsa thing, but I got the Faust thing. <laughs> she's um, doing, she's doing yeah, bad, bad things. Yes. Trying to get out of the situation. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, another part of this was that Tom Cruise has been quoted saying that his first celebrity crush was actually Ingrid Bergman in the movie Notorious. So really? I thought that was an interesting like that he like picked Rebecca Ferguson yeah. for this. This is the first Mission Impossible movie and to this date the only Mission Impossible movie where Tom Cruise isn't in the final scene of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Which is interesting. That is interesting. But the, but the end scene of this movie really sets up Fallout. It does. So You're right. that's something. It really does. Um, And then, of course, we got to end on Elsa Faust being a badass because that's basically what most of this has been about. Elsa mm-hmm. Faust has the highest body count in the movie at eight. Wow. Which is more than Ethan's five. Okay. Um, And so she takes out eight people in this movie. Pretty good. Because she's a badass. She is indeed. This was so fun. It was. We've been watching a lot of movies. A lot of movies. This was another double feature. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad that I had this idea. <laughs> Me too. It's brilliant. <laughs> to watch Casablanca follow it up by Rogue Nation. It was, it, was a, it was a very good viewing experience. Because even though there's not like a ton of... There are some ties to Casablanca. Mm-hmm. I do feel like he infused a lot of that old Hollywood glamour into Rogue Nation, and you get a feel for that in Casablanca. Yeah. And I feel like it's you see much more of the correlation between the two. Definitely. Um, I agree. So it was very, very exciting. Well, thanks for coming back on the podcast, man. Happy to be here. This was so fun. So much fun. Where were you, episode seven before? That was episode seven. Jerry Maguire, yep. Seven and 25. And I'm There's back still now. room for a third. There is. I know. Is. So we'll have to see. Maybe Cameron will come back on the, po- on the podcast. But thanks so much for listening to the special Texas edition of the Booze Cruise podcast. And Cameron, thanks so much for making the cocktails for this one. Yeah, yeah. The bartender, I, I came through for us and uh, we had a good time. The had Booze a lot of Cruise fun. bartender extraordinaire. Appreciate it. That's what they call me. All right. Until next time. <laughs>